Helix mattresses have been recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Everybody is unique, and everyone sleeps differently. That's why Helix has several different mattress models to choose from, each designed for specific sleep positions and feel preferences. So how will you know which Helix mattress works best for you and your body? You can take the Helix Sleep Quiz and find your perfect mattress in under two minutes. And your personalized mattress is shipped straight to your door free of charge. Helix knows there's no better way to test out a new mattress than by sleeping on it in your own home. That's why they offer a 100-night trial and a 10-15 to year warranty to try out your new Helix mattress. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash drink. That's helixsleep.com slash drink. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Hey, does anyone want to learn French with me? Because I've decided in 2024 that I want to learn French. And thankfully, I have Rosetta Stone. So you better hop on and so we can learn French together. Rosetta Stone has the amazing true accent feature, which is so helpful, especially in French. You get feedback on how well you're actually pronouncing words. Plus, they have 25 languages to choose from. So if you're not going to learn French with me, I'm sure you can find some other people who will learn a language with you. But I'm on the French team this year. Come on, folks, join me. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, and that's why we drink listeners, can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash drink. That's rosettastone.com slash drink. All right, Miss Christine. Hi. Hi. Are you are you are you well? You've got your little trashy classy situation on your head. I do. I, I thought you'd notice. I'm so pleased that you saw my headband that this is the one that that prompted the initial trashy classy comment. The the beginning of it all, the beginning of the end. <laughs> and the end of the beginning. Well, uh I I'm always going to notice when you've got your little weird cloth cloth bunny ears. So, <laughs> that's they're very cute. You very look like a cute little Thank trashy you. bunny. I, so. I love to be a trashy bunny, especially with Easter approaching. My Catholic <laughs> upbringing really works, you know, it's seamless, really. Um, but I uh, mostly me- use them when I don't. This is not an ad. I don't know why I'm talking like it is, but I mostly use them when I don't wash my hair, which is like often on almost every day. These uh, are the so. real ads. It's like, hmm, the Easter Bunny <laughs> is coming to town, so I'm their cousin, Trashy Bunny, yeah. and I don't take showers. This so is how here's... we used to do ads until every company was like, stop calling us trashy <laughs> and stop comparing us to the Catholic Church. None of this is what we want you to say. <laughs> um, no, my sweet little bunny. Um, I. It's very nice to see you. I, I missed you yesterday. I feel like we... We talked a lot, and I didn't see your face enough. So. Yeah, you. We had a meeting, and M was just like, "I don't know how to turn on my camera." So you were kind of voice of God in the background the whole time. I really couldn't figure it out. We were using a different meeting There's setup. There's like than a I'm million of them nowadays. I mean, whatever. We all missed you. M painted a beautiful picture saying, "Oh, I'm in a. Don't worry, I'm in a white robe with the sun setting behind me." Mm-hmm. I added a cigar for my own. Um, for my own taste and sure. it, it was beautiful in my you painted a picture in my mind so thank you thank you i i really i wanted everyone to still feel like i was above them right um in some way i got it you, you know gotta. you couldn't you couldn't see me but i was gonna make sure you could see something right and so of course there there comes that illustration i did see something yes I <laughs> was it like a nightmare a vision of you running forever yeah it was a lot um, of night terrors in my sleep I, yeah I wanted to thank you. I'm sorry. I keep, I feel like I'm keep interrupting oh, you. Right? You're, you're welcome. Something really wise and sageful, but yeah. Um, 
I wanted totally. to thank you. For those of you who don't know, uh, Christine surprised me and Eva with a literal bouquet of oh. donuts at each of our doors. <laughs> I'm and sitting was... here going, what are you thanking me for? I didn't send a plunger this week, I don't think. No, but that plunger <laughs> has come in use so much in terms of being my new door knocker oh, on God. the ceiling. No, no, no. We've got other plungers. But uh, no, because Trey Songs has right. needed a stern talking to, and he's gotten yeah. it on the business end of this plunger by me doing a little ceiling tapping. So very powerful. You're, you're just full of weekly presence. And anyway, I wanted to thank you publicly (laughs) that those donuts were some of the best donuts I've ever had. Oh, really? Um, I'm glad you liked your uh, donuts. I was kind of annoyed that they didn't uh, ship from LA to Kentucky. So I didn't get any donuts, but I'm living vicariously. I'm pleased that you liked them. I have never heard of a donut bouquet before. So I'm glad it worked out. Thank you. Anyway, I I wanted to beat you to the punch before I forgot. And that is why I drink this week is that you treated me to some fine gifts recently. And I feel very loved. So thank you. Well, you are very loved. I feel like ever since I left town, I have to prove it all the time to you guys. Not because you asked me to, but because I feel uh, insecure that I left you behind. I mean, if the result is a box of donuts every week, I'll (laughs) let you feel like shit. That's okay. You're going to keep like letting me believe this horrible truth about myself. Oh, Christine, I don't feel loved. What? to do send me another toiletry object (laughs) Uh, why do you drink this week (laughs) oh thank you for asking i actually don't drink this week because i am going on a road trip today oh right yes i'm so excited about this tell me yeah i'm going driving all the way to lexington kentucky uh, an hour half south of me to get my big old needle in the arm covid vaccine i'm so excited i got an email a few days ago and they were like you have like a window of two hours to snag your spot and i jumped in picked uh it was the only day they had was our day of recording so i'm sorry i've been like <laughs> aggressively rushing you guys i feel like in weird texts like no i'm this, leaving <laughs> honestly we we as a unit need this because do you know how many times we've started beyond like late is even a word at that point <laughs> no and i know now we're like we've already got through our ads and everything and it's we're 23 Record minutes time. usually we start at 10 it's 10 23 like this is pretty good this is actually honestly pretty amazing, and I felt like I was being kind of um, aggressive about it. Uh, but thank you. I'm, I'm very excited. Um, initially, I was going to go down by myself, and it's an hour and a half drive there. Then I have to get the shot. Then I guess they watch you for a half hour. Then mm-hmm. you have to drive back. And my shot isn't until 6.40, so it was going to be really late. But my sister's coming over to watch Geo. Blaze and I are driving down. Little road trip, little couple bonding while I probably have a fever in the passenger seat and um as you gain a, a a love for the taste of flesh as some, <laughs> yeah, as some people might think. <laughs> that's right as i take over the state of kentucky and uh become <laughs> a monster yeah uh so i'm very excited i get my I, i'm as everyone knows i'm terrified of needles um and i get needles in my arm constantly like i did monday for remicade and i'm just fulfilling my prophecy of surrounding myself with my worst fear over and over again it's it's your calling I feel for you when it comes to the fear of needles. I'm terrified of needles. And apparently Allison didn't know that until way late in our relationship. I didn't know that about you. Oh, I'm so beyond. I Oh, yeah. If I, I were to get like a like a wildly invasive surgery, the thing I would care about the most is getting the like the initial needle to fall the asleep. IV. Yeah. yeah, that's always my thing. When I go to a place, I have to be like, I want you to understand that like I need you to like for my wisdom teeth, I cried for days. I didn't give a shit yeah. about the actual surgery. Yeah. I sobbed about the fucking um, IV. And I got one the other day on my hand and it still hurts. It's bruised, Aww. as you can see. And um, it's like now I've been having this thing, this remicade for 11 years now. And um, 
still every single couple every eight weeks i'm uh petrified and uh well it's I, really terrible <laughs> to be fair i i feel like even if you didn't have a fear of needles before like just getting something like that every x amount of days for your entire life is just gonna cause an issue you, with needles think but everybody says like oh well you'll get used to it because you know at a certain point you just have to give up <laughs> and sort of but not really i'm still terrified but anyway yeah sorry so that's a derail but yes uh covid vaccine very excited blaze has already been vaccinated so we're gonna be hopefully a somewhat safer household nice well yeah rj has been vaccinated he's gone through both uh oh good wow shots already I don't know how, how? This I don't know how it works, but apparently in California, maybe this is all over, but it feels like a very California thing that he's a lifeguard during the summer, and so that uh, that oh. makes him a frontline worker. Which oh, I don't understand, but I that's was a like, very beach, yeah, beach oriented. I was like, okay, that sounds very Santa Monica. Um, but Can you okay. imagine if I told Lexington, Kentucky, I'm a lifeguard? They'd be like, please go home. It's snowing outside. Well, he also so he still has to work, um, and he works with kids and i guess since the aha uh-huh. that's a big one too yeah i guess since the because he's a like a first grade swim coach on top of being a lifeguard right. he's like a jack of all swimming trades <laughs> but so he, i mean i guess since the pandemic started they've been doing like remote it's been the funniest thing in the world Christine. remote swim lessons with six-year-olds stop it so on right zoom they'll like you know <laughs> like float around like oh my god it sounds like a barn a scene from barney everyone's doing like rj <laughs> rj is the front line barney yeah the new purple dinosaur that everyone needs yeah so they like fake tread in water or something wow. he also has been really good about um because he also does a whole lot of like manifestation videos and things like that so he's oh. like he'll do like little workshops with the kids where they sit there and close their eyes and imagine they're in the pool and imagine they're going to oh, be there last that's time. the sweetest thing ever. And God. you can hear all these little six-year-olds go, bye, Coach RJ. It's Stop very, it. Very sweet. So Okay, the, I would run over there with and stab him in the arm myself with a needle. <laughs> uh, so I understand now why California said, sir, get in the front of the line. I think they're trying to start up the, the classes in, in real life. So... That's why he had to. Yeah, get... working with kids is definitely like up there in the first phases, I think. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, that was another derail. Welcome to, and that's why we drank, where we just derail Welcome. every five seconds. This is the last, this is the first non QAnon episode in like a month. Oh my God. That, Christine, I'm, first of all, the influx of just kind words from everyone oh. after my QAnon uh You did research. a great job. People were on into it. Thank you. I really appreciate I really worked hard to make sure I didn't offend anybody. Um, while we actually are talking about QAnon, I have a little bit of an announcement, which I'm not in QAnon. You're joining oh QAnon. <laughs> <laughs> you really sounded like you were joining yeah. QAnon. Surprise. Um, you no, convinced I, yourself. No, I've been thinking about it. I haven't seen anyone complain about this, but like I kind of think it's a matter of time if I don't address it. So I'm just going to do it Uh-oh. now. And for good reason, by the way. Um, but I realized that in the midst of doing a, first of all, in in being a kind person in general and someone who I like to think is pretty empathetic, I should have been more aware of it before, but after doing the QAnon episodes, I'm realizing it was just very tasteless of me that um, during all this London fog nonsense we've been bringing up, people are calling it the London fog cults. And oh. I I would like to rebrand us because I, um, I've had oh, my I didn't time. I think of that. 
I've had my time in the limelight as a cult leader, and it's it's been fun. My turn. <laughs> it's been fun, but I think we need to we need to do a little hmm, zhuzhing, if you will. Yeah, I get you. Some brand uh brand what's the word restructuring? I don't know. Yeah, uh, so anything anything that sounds really professional. That's Some marketing what I'm to term, do. I'm sure. Um, and so a revamping maybe revamp. Yeah, that's the one. And so uh, I've decided I've been I've been flirting with a bunch of other um, group names and just I just want to avoid cults just because I have just discussed for the last Why several ever weeks. Not? Like, you know, there's a <laughs> lot of victims of cults out there. To be and fair, of- I called it a cult, too. So I apologize if that was um, setting the train in motion. I think neither of us were really aware of what was going on. Yeah, I think I was just not. so excited that people were listening to me about the world's greatest drink. <laughs> but so I have decided on the London Fog Society. <gasps> and That's it's, so classy. I know. Oh, it sounds man. so swanky. I feel like we should all get membership cards by the end of this. Yeah, like, you all got to have your pinky up when you're drinking your London Fog. Well, I'll have like a little lapel pin at oh, our chapter yes. meetings by a by a smoky fireplace. Oh, you know? yes. Your cigar just... can come back. Your white robe can come back. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Oh, listen, I I circulate that that robe in and out of my life in many ways. I'm just, I see. I, I need Very to look like a presence. accessory. Yeah, I'm saying. So anyway, the London Fog Society is how we shall now be named. Furthermore, furthermore, is that how here unto furthermore we shall be called thus the end um your, your founding father emothy <laughs> um but yeah so if you are to um be spreading the good news uh i i would suggest that you refer to us from now on as the society don't even have to add london fog society in there if you don't want just the, the society, society. Tam, actually tam, tam. i recommend you just call it the society because i think that alone has its own mystere you know I love it because you can tell people like, oh, I'm part of the society. Never heard of it. Oh no, no, it's it's too it's too grandiose to oh, talk about understand. here. Not here. Not now. Not here. Yeah. Not now. Yeah. And then so you anyway. can you can take your robe and go whoosh and turn around. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm so glad I like painted a picture of me in a robe one time. I can't and now stop it's been thinking. I like that I'm... I got you a tie dye robe, and instead you're just envisioning yourself in a white, glorious, godly robe. Yeah, they're for do. They're two different types of parties. Got uh, it. Yeah. The the tie dye ones when you're chasing down the ice cream truck and that's uh, my my after hours robe that's a party <laughs> oh, robe oh it's uh, <laughs> empathy at night <laughs> anyway oh my gosh so there you go there's we're part of the society now welcome am I part of it yeah yeah uh, yeah you've been drinking yeah London you Fox. sounded a little un- unsure of yourself there I forgot that you had been drinking Lennon fogs but then I remembered <laughs> you are obviously part of the society I drank them before there was a contest okay I ha- <laughs> I went and had one in your I walked through snow you sure uphill did grandpa in my bare feet both, both ways, ways. <laughs> to get my my classy Lennon fog with oat milk okay just like you. grandfather did grandpapa in the olden days I you know what I like to think in terms of the London fog society I am everyone's grandpapa grandpapa Emothy so you're certainly my Christopolis's grandpapa Okay. Well, anyway, that is my only announcement. I just wanted to, you know, judge things up. I don't want to be making fun of anyone or anything like that. So. Oh, Christine? Yeah. Oh, I'm you, on just board. Sat, I'm... you just sat so still. It was like a, it was in a haunted movie you were like, with this a doll. Has, 
<laughs> you were like, this has never happened. Christine, stop moving and stop speaking. Something is very wrong. I was just My trying heart. to tell myself to stop interrupting the interrupting the flow of the episode clearly i've just created a whole new disruption i apologize (laughs) my heart stopped i was like i'm waiting to like hear a little girl giggle or something it's very creepy my eyes glassed over like doll (laughs) doll eyes yeah i apologize um i was just kind of uh leaving open a window for you to tell me your story for today thank you that's the first in four years between either of us but i appreciate it (laughs) we let the other talk yeah isn't that fun no it's not apparently it's terrible it doesn't work no i appreciate you trying not to interrupt me as i regularly interrupt you i'm so sorry about that (laughs) um by now, you've probably heard about Burrow, a new kind of furniture company known for timeless designs, durable materials, and details that make life in your space easier. Last year, they brought their expertise outside with the launch of their outdoor line, which I love, and now they're adding more must-have pieces to the collection. For example, Dunes offers seating, dining, and lounger options, while Scout is a new folding chair upholstered in a chic woven fabric. And I think I'm going to get two of those for the balcony. Blaze and I love to sit out there in the evenings after Leona goes to bed. And I love the idea of having a good-looking but also extremely useful and comfy place to sit outside. Made of durable materials made for all seasons, weather-resistant teak, stainless alloy, and quick-dry stain-resistant and cushions with easy assembly and disassembly. This is the perfect thing for your outdoor space. They also just launched a new standing desk, co-pilot with adjustable height, a durable scratch-resistant body with built-in storage to make working at home easier than ever. I'm in the market for a new desk, um, so this is definitely going to be my next bookmark. And of course, there's Burroughs Legacy seating collections like the Nomad and Range, now available in new colors. And Em and I, that's like the only piece of furniture I think we actually share is our Burroughs sofa in the podcast department. Love that thing. And that's why we drink listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash drink. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash drink for 15% off. Burrow.com slash drink. It feels very fitting that Juniper is currently sitting on my lap uh, because we all want our cats to be healthy and happy because when they're happy, we're happy. But because we're not mind readers, we don't always know when they're unwell. And in my experience, cats are not the most, you know, open when it comes to sharing their woes. And there goes Junie, literally jumped right off me. So helping us keep tabs on our cat's health is just one reason you should use Pretty Litter. Pretty Litter's ultra absorbent crystals trap odor instantly. No more cat bathroom smell, thank God. Pretty Litter's super light crystal base also minimizes mess and dust. Plus, the crystals last up to a month, which means less scooping and fewer trips to the garbage can for Blaze, because that's his job. Here's the coolest thing about Pretty Litter. It changes colors to help monitor early signs of potential illness in our cats, including urinary tract infections and kidney issues, and Pretty Litter ships free right to your door in a small, lightweight bag. Pretty Litter has changed the game. The litter box is right near Leona's room, and so it is very delightful to not have that litter smell all the time when she's taking a nap. Plus, we can rest easy knowing that Juniper and his little kidneys are healthy. Pretty Litter helps keep tabs on my cat's health and keeps odors down. You and your cat are going to love Pretty Litter as much as we do. Go to prettylitter.com slash ATWWD and use code ATWWD to save 20% on your first order. That's prettylitter.com slash ATWWD, code ATWWD to save 20%. prettylitter.com slash ATWWD, code ATWWD. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Okay, so my story this time is a paranormal story, so everyone can relax for a second. I'm not going to talk about, like, your personal loved ones anymore. Um, This is from 1981. It is in Brookfield, Connecticut. If you are from that area, you might know the story I'm about to cover. Um, And it sounds like it's a uh, true crime. It is actually a demonic story. (gasps) 
This is The Trial of Arnie Cheyenne Johnson, a.k.a. The Devil Made Me Do It case. What? Okay, I'm so excited. A.k.a. The Demon Murder Trial, a.k.a. The Brookfield Demons case. Holy shit. Why can't we all just ever settle on one goddamn name? Never. Things? Ugh. Anyway, so this is uh, 1981. Brookfield, Connecticut, and at this point, Brookfield, Connecticut had been around for 193 years, had never had a homicide. What? Wow. They're, they Apparently, at this time or around this time, the papers were like raving, like, it's been 193 years without a homicide. That's like, called a, you're jinxing it, friends. Yeah, someone should have knocked on some wood. Also, some, it's yep. funny that that's how they're phrasing it, because that's like me being like, 28 years without a homicide over here. It's like, well. It's been almost 10 decades since I murdered anyone. Yeah. <laughs> also, why why are you celebrating on year 193? Why why didn't you pick like three years earlier? Or you were so close to 200 years. You couldn't Maybe talk about this Maybe they just had a feeling. Years. Because can you imagine you get so close to 200, then someone murders someone and you're like, well, we couldn't have the, we had to, uh, parade is off. <laughs> Tell okay. the mayor to go home. That's an excellent point, actually. Someone was like, we're getting too close to. Dangerously. <laughs> I like how they held out for 193 years, though. They were like, <laughs> something is, hmm, something's afoot. We might as well go for it. So, uh, anyway, so February 16th, uh, there was a 19-year-old named Arnie Johnson, who went by Cheyenne. And uh, I think that was just like a family nickname or something. So, uh, February 16th, 19-year-old Cheyenne stabbed his landlord multiple <gasps> times with a pocket knife. Um his landlord's name was Alan Bono, and Alan died later in the hospital. Oh, no. Um, Cheyenne was arrested, and eight months later, he pled not guilty by virtue of demonic possession. Sure, 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 sure. Which was the first time in U.S. history that this defense was used. You don't say. <laughs> this is not to be confused, by the way, with the other story of Elva Zona Heaster, which we have covered before where she was the she had already died and with her through the Ouija board she like helps her mm. mom find her murderer or something like that mm -hmm. um so when people hear the devil made me do it or anything along those lines it sounds a lot like I know who my murderer is case or yeah they just get kind of uh combined so that is not the same story Elvisona Heaster is a different story there um so Cheyenne's attorney his name was Martin Manila and when they decided to use this demonic possession defense, Martin Manella said, the courts have dealt with the existence of God, and now they're going to have to deal with the existence of the devil. Mm. Um, so just to give you some background, Arnie was 19. He was known as Cheyenne by his friends and family. He had a 26 or 27-year-old fiance named Debbie Glatzel. And Debbie is another big part of this story, so... In July the year before, the couple had recently signed a lease for a rental property from Alan Bono, and apparently they were super in love. They actually met when Arnie was a kid. He was 12 and had, like, a crush on her. She was older than him. I, and I think Debbie actually became friends with his mom, and so she was always around, and he says it was love at first sight, and eventually when he got older, he asked her out, and she said yes, and uh, they have been together ever since apparently it's a little touch and go because arnie was 16 and she was 23 but we're gonna ignore mm. that because they are still in love to this day at least and when uh, he was 12 she was like 20 
19 i think 19? and so and she was like not about it when he was 12 right to right, be right. fair but sure, uh, yes, yes yes but she was about it when he was 16 so right uh, i don't know i don't know what you want to do with that information they ended <laughs> up being very much in love and are still together i think so um it worked out in this case so eventually they found this rental property and it needed some maintenance though so the family was regularly going over and they were going to start cleaning I think this day happened to be, it depends on the reports. There's a lot of like, the details are sort of muddled. So I don't know if it was just the couple and Debbie's little brother, or if the mom was also there, it doesn't really totally matter. But so Cheyenne and Debbie went over to the rental property to start cleaning it up a little bit. I'm pretty sure Debbie's mom was there and Debbie's little brother, David, were there. Mm Mm-hmm. So I don't know how weird this is supposed to be. It was like a random fact that I saw and I don't, it doesn't become like a big detail, but I guess for the sake of spookiness, it was supposed to be spooky. Um, I guess the previous tenants left a bed sitting in the middle of the master bedroom. The entire place was completely empty, but a random bed was still sitting in a room. And it only felt eerie and creepy once I watched, there's a like a dramatic reenactment of this story on this show haunting a haunting and uh all of a sudden the bed became like the spookiest thing in the fucking world (laughs) beforehand i totally ignored that fact but if you watch the uh if you watch the a haunting episode about this you will see that there was a little i think artistic license used in the story (laughs) you don't say (laughs) (laughs) so while they were there cleaning they asked david to go clean in the bedroom where there was that bed and suddenly david got pushed onto the bed and he said that the old man in that room pushed him. Oh. And no one else was there. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh-huh. I was like, we don't yep. know that man, right? Okay. We don't know about that man. Apparently, nobody was there, but David swears that an old man pushed him Ooh. onto the bed. And the man apparently had a plaid shirt that was torn at the elbow, and he had jeans. And uh, David said that the man pointed at him and said, beware. <gasps> uh, he said that he was going to hurt the family if they moved onto the property. And when David ran to tell Cheyenne and Debbie about this, they just thought he was, like, trying to get out of helping clean. So they were like, okay, whatever, <laughs> like, go out in the yard. It's and- a very Em and Christine move. <laughs> no, you don't understand. There's a ghost. I'm going to sit outside in my robe. And, and Eva's like, mimosa. please leave. Please leave the premises. I can't I've been trying this. to get you to leave for hours. Please <laughs> finally get out of here. So uh, that night, apparently, David actually saw this guy again when they got home. So, like, it, it followed them home. Oh, at, the, at their... Oh, God. Yeah, so they've been staying at Debbie's mom's house while they're cleaning out the rental property. So their version of home right now is Debbie's mom's house. Right. So they were all there, and David, the little brother, saw this man again. And this time mm-hmm. he said the man was starting to look different, so he was already shifting into something mm-hmm. else. Apparently he had burnt-looking skin, and he was barefoot, and this time he spoke Latin. Mm-mm. and uh he said beware he said he was going to take david's soul the, all the classics um mm-hmm. and soon david started calling him the beast and oh. started seeing him throughout the day so it wasn't even just like a creepy thing at night it was happening all the time um Ugh. apparently david said that he could see the beast's quote big black eyes thin face with animal features jagged teeth pointed ears horns and hoofs uh-oh Hoofs, hooves, hooves, hooves. Hmm. Eva. I think hooves. Okay. I thought hooves. It behooves you to say hooves. 
behooves it behooves me to say behoove. Wait a minute. All of it's wrong. All of it's wrong. Okay. We don't know this language very well. It's okay. So, uh, yeah. So he started, the beast man kept finding him and saying, beware. Uh, don't, you know, move on the property. I'll hurt your family. And David very quickly started changing from a very bubbly, happy kid to quiet and anxious. Aww. At the same time, they started hearing noises from the attic that were unexplained, but you never hear anything more about that. So I don't know how that plays into things. Maybe that was completely irrelevant. Um, But there started to be scratches and bruises all over David's body when he was going to sleep at night. So it was like these injuries were just showing up when he wasn't even causing them. And he was now starting to wake up every 30 minutes and have seizures. (gasps) And uh, he was also having really terrible nightmares. And the family basically had to start taking shifts, staying up with him or trying to hold him down because he would start fighting in his sleep. How old was he at this point? Do we know? He's 12. Okay. Wow. That's terrible. Um, He would start, he started spitting on them. He started kicking them. He started biting the family. He tried to apparently attack his grandma with a knife, according (laughs) to one report. And he regularly was acting like he was being choked or stabbed by something that they couldn't see. Oh, geez. So that's pretty terrible. Yeah. Um, Here's a quote. Uh, that one time he looked, quote, strangled by invisible hands, which he tried to pull from his neck, and powerful forces flopped him rapidly head to toe like a rag doll. Ugh. So he told his family what was going on. He was telling his mom about this, and his mom, Judy, sa- uh, said, quote, I believed him instantly. I've read about the supernatural. I've heard the Warrens' lectures, and when he first explained it, I thought it was a ghost. So she's on top of it. She's like... Like right away. (laughs) She was like, all I need to hear is half of that information and I'm on board to get you help. Old man, I'm in. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. There's (laughs) not not a man near my house. No, Mm -mm. no. Um, And so David's parents went to their pastor and the pastor tried to help. I think they did like some blessings around the house or something. But eventually they said, there's nothing we can do here. You should call the Warrens. Mm -hmm. So and Lorraine Warren, hopefully you know who they are by now, but they're um, a very famous power couple, let's call them. <laughs> I would say power couple, definitely. Um, Ed is a demonologist and Lorraine is a clairvoyant and together they have gone on some of the most intense supernatural cases to try to help however they can. So Are they still alive? No, they're they've both passed. Okay. But they also happen to live nearby Brookfield, Connecticut. So right. I think they were kind of relatively close, so they could just pop on over um because they're from monroe connecticut i think that's right yeah so they called the warrens and they called the warrens uh 12 days from the first event and apparently only 12 days in it was just like awful they yeah that's fast so lorraine was quoted saying we were contacted by the family who believed the weird phenomena were that was surrounding their child And here's where it gets kind of weird, too, because later I'm going to get into the shadier part of the Warrens, um, just because a lot of people think that their credibility isn't Mm. 100%. And that goes for most of their cases. There's a lot of skeptics. Right. And one of the things that people are skeptical of this time is that apparently Debbie and her mom, Judy, were like big fans of the Warrens. And Uh, so it's not a good look. Yeah. It sounds like they were just willing to to agree to whatever the Warrens were saying. Like they had. Especially when she was like, right away, I was like, it's a ghost. Uh huh. Yeah. He's not having real seizures. (laughs) It's a ghost. Call Lorraine. And in in that quote of her, she said, like, I have seen the Warrens' lectures and all that. Like, right. 
So they apparently were just like a Warren fan family. So it doesn't really help that they were probably just willing to believe whatever the Warrens had to say. Sure. Um, so in an initial visit with the Warren family, Lorraine said that she saw, quote, a black misty form next to David. Soon the child was complaining that invisible hands were choking him and there were red marks on him. He said that he had the feeling of being hit. David mm. would be doodling and he'd be concentrating and then he would look up and he would no longer be an 11 year old boy. Ooh, okay. So that was like on their first goddamn visit, apparently, that he was just like his face was contorting in front of them and only she could see it. And Judy said that she thought originally it was a ghost, but Ed and Lorraine, I guess, educated her later that it actually wasn't a ghost that he was being afflicted by. So the Warrens told the Washington Post. The Washington Post, by the way, had like the longest article on this I could find. So Oh, interesting. Shout out to the Washington Post. Um, The Warrens told that paper that, quote, ghosts, after all, are small potatoes in the supernatural scheme of things. (laughs) Which, I like, I'm down with the small potatoes. I don't need to know anything else. Small potatoes, keep me down here. Um, (laughs) Sad little spirits that somehow haven't crossed over properly, lingering on in the material world close to old associations, sometimes mischievous, rarely malevolent. This was different. The spirit infesting David Glatzel is inhuman and evil. Ugh. So I guess if they, if his face was contorting and they saw a shadow figure behind him or whatever, they were like, okay, this is no bueno. This is no longer a sad little human or this, whatever <laughs> they called a ghost. <laughs> this, this ain't no small potatoes. Oh, I love small potatoes. So I do I too. Like you and I, let's stick with that. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's stick with the, all the Walters and, uh. All the small other potatoes. Uh, yeah, the starches. The s- yeah. yeah. Walter does sound like <laughs> if it had to be a, a type of food, it would be a starch. Absolutely. So a the gin, war- is gin is, isn't gin a starch? Oh my <laughs> God. I'm making shit is up, it? but I think it is. Hang on a second. That's, we're onto something here. Is gin a, st- okay. The internet's like, what does this mean? <laughs> uh, okay. Well, vodka is. Corn, right? A starch. This is like the worst home ec class. <laughs> home ec, yeah. Here's what vodka is, or four H or whatever kind of class this would be. But no, it's, um, I yeah. don't know. I know that booze is made of starch, so you know, close enough. Okay, so booze is made of starch. Ghosts like booze. Ghosts are small potatoes. Potatoes. <laughs> ghosts are starch and like their starch. That's this fine. This is like four H and uh, algebra. I'm pretty mixed sure together. we're biologists now. Did oh, you hear okay. that happen? Yeah, I heard regular it. biologists, one hundred percent. My brain unlocked something. I heard it happen. Anyway, I think it was just snapping, but yeah, I guess <laughs> it was just my my soul clawing like, to leave my my corn husk behind. Leave your husk behind. <laughs> so oh, boy. Uh, the Warrens went to Brookfield to investigate. Obviously, they apparently brought along a guy named Reverend Francis Vergelick. And uh, Ed Ed Warren claims that the that Reverend Vergelick and them had worked on previous cases together. The Catholic clergy cannot confirm this, which also makes it interesting in terms mm-hmm. of if you're on the skeptical side. So they did three quote lesser exorcisms on David, which I guess are more deliverances versus exorcisms. And I'll explain later why they didn't do like an official exorcism. But they did three lesser exorcisms on David, where at the time of these lesser exorcisms, they saw him levitating. He stopped breathing at one point. He gave the names of 
43 demons possessing him. Jesus, 43. What an escalation from 12 days ago when you saw an old man. And now there's 43 demons. Also, the old man had jeans on. Like, what happened? He's not made of starch like the others, I guess. I guess not. Um, there is another report that said that he was actually made up of 43 demons and two devils, which I found interesting that the devils and demons were different. Yeah. I'm clearly not equipped to teach this class anymore. So I'm stepping down. I'm not a numbers kind of person. I'm, I'm more of a meat and potatoes kind of person. We're a big picture meat and potatoes (laughs) kind of folk. Uh, but anyway, because there were potentially 45 entities if you count the two devils uh his mom judy anytime she referred to the entities in david she would call them they and they them pronouns hey um we're normalizing pronouns however we have to however we have to. however this if this is the angle that it takes (laughs) if this is what gets you to pay attention We'll throw in 45 demons, sure. Um, but so apparently Judy started referring to David as they because of all of Ew, these. Ew, that's creepy, though. Yeah. So um, that's why I call you they. I know. Well, I have more demons. You're I have... built of a thousand demons. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to... I was going to make a comment about like skeletons in my closet or something, but the, the th- built on a thousand demons is just so grunge. That is so seen. And so, a- oh my God, I feel that heard. Was, that was the name of my live journal uh, in 2005, <laughs> built on a Someone, thousand demons. If you had, if you were the person who had the AIM screen, I don't even know what the name is anymore. A AI, screen name. A user name. A screen name. name. Yeah. If you had the screen name built on a thousand demons, please God, write us your entire autobiography, and we will read it on the podcast. I want to because... be your friend. <laughs> <laughs> but it was Zach Bagans. Oh, it was. <laughs> You're definitely right. I tried to get it, but he had it, so I had to change the Z, the S to a Z. Um, <laughs> but I had the knockoff version. <laughs> Obviously, yours was just built on 100 demons. Like... Oh, yeah. I was like the lesser. Yeah, that's sad. <laughs> I was like the bargain bin version of uh, the bargain. A, a hill of demons. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. You are built of that. That's why we use they them pronouns. I know a lot of people don't really get it, but I use they them pronouns because they're built on a thousand demons and two devils. Finally, we can have this conversation. I feel safe enough. Um, okay, good, 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 good. So good. thank you, thank you for bringing this to everyone's attention. I thought it's about time. I kind of want to be known as someone. I kind like that's such a badass. I feel like you get to be immediately a hell's angel or absolutely something. Like, i think our podcast would t- like take over uh, if if let's start this rumor folks that this podcast <laughs> is built on a thousand demons i want to get Wait up in minute. the charts like spotify has to create a new uh category for like featured podcasts that's just called like podcast built on a thousand demons and it's just us no that's like the category is just our podcast 10 yeah. times in a row mm-hmm. um a thousand brilliant. and two. Oh, right my bad This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. Everyone knows the holidays can take a toll on your bank account. If you're looking for creative ways to increase revenue, then get started with Squarespace's new feature, Squarespace Courses. Squarespace has the tools you need to create and sell your own online course. Start with a professional layout that fits your brand, upload video lessons to teach techniques and skills, and tailor your course with the powerful built-in Fluid Engine Editor. With Squarespace courses, you can create engaging content your audience will love, then simply add a paywall and set the price. Plus, you can charge a one-time fee or sell subscriptions. 
Turn your creativity into income with Squarespace courses. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, go to www.squarespace.com drink to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Okay, so yes, they, David and his 45 friends, um, they, frenemies, uh, yeah, um, good point. Good point. Apparently, David started in front of the war and started hissing. He was having more seizures. He was speaking in voices. He yeah. apparently started quoting the Bible a lot, and he was also quoting passages from Paradise Lost, which is oh. very interesting. Creepy. I don't know what that means in terms of, like, demons and ghosts, but I can't do it, so. That's true. Uh, yeah. I can't do any of that. Uh, all of the above. So the family and the Warrens could also sense whenever, quote, the beast was about to take possession of (sighs) David Um, because, oh, this was a quote of how they could tell. His head would lower to his chest and he would slowly lift it. And when he did, his features would have contorted into a snarl and there was nothing to be seen but the whites of his eyes. And then he would laugh a hideous laugh. Ugh. I mean, 12 year olds are terrifying already. And now imagine that they look down for a second and come nope. back without pupils and they're cackling and their faces all twisted up. No, no, nope. no, 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 no. Built no, on... no, 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 no. Nope. I don't like that. Um, end of story. The end. Period. The, the end. Um, another quote about uh, t- this time and the, or hanging out with David. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, quote, they say the plates have levitated, that rocking chairs have flown through the air and books moved mysteriously away, and that a cake pan floated straight to the ceiling. The beast has called up David's brother on the telephone and warned him to beware. Ew. Ugh. Which means, like, ring, ring, who could it be? And you don't have caller ID. <laughs> you, it's just, it's just your friends. Um, <laughs> oh, no. Uh, and to keep going with the quote, and Debbie says she has been clawed by a mysterious green hand rising from the floor and attacking her in her bed at night. and she too has seen the face of the beast debbie has said quote i saw a face with jagged teeth and coal black eyes it had horns and pointed ears flashing lights appeared on the wall and then i heard my mother and cheyenne call my name so almost like she was also in a trance from this thing yeah because all of a sudden she could hear people calling her name um there were some more boring instances i guess of the 45 living within him um some of them just had to get the daily chores done because (laughs) not everyone can be yeah the star (laughs) of the show i guess not everyone can be the beast (sighs) um so apparently judy the mom said that she would also experience random things like her clothes getting dumped out of her drawers and cosmetics getting thrown on the floor just like really inconvenient situations (laughs) um she also said that she would sit, would call them punks to their face. Like, she would, like, scream at them about how they're being punks, and she would tell them to go back to where she came from, or where they came from. <laughs> okay. Um, and apparently, when David that one time was getting thrown around like a rag doll, this was... <laughs> Judy tried to defend David by saying, he can't even do a sit-up, leave him alone. Like... <laughs> 
Okay, I'm starting to feel like this is personally attacking me. Um, I, I'm starting to feel like I am at risk if... Uh, yeah. I mean, if Allison saw my body getting thrown all over the place like I was a gymnast, and <laughs> and she knows what I'm capable of, she'd be like, something is very wrong here. Yeah. Something is Em's body has never moved so quickly and so with such agility. <laughs> so limber. Why? What's going on? It must be many demons. That's the only <laughs> explanation. Minimum 40, maximum minimum. 50. I can't decide. It's somewhere in there. It's got to be. So one day when things were getting really bad during all this investigation with the Warrens, David all of a sudden predicted a murder would be coming soon. Oh, that's nice. Okay. (laughs) I don't know how the details, I don't know how specific it was, but I do know that Cheyenne himself was very nervous. Um, So I don't know if that means that Cheyenne was the one that he claimed would be involved in this or whatever, but everyone, let's just say, was disturbed in a little little bit. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, after that lesser exorcism or whatever they were calling it, the Warrens did call the local police and they were like, yo, so this house is super dangerous. And uh, the kid that is probably possessed by a demon is now like screaming references about violent acts in the area. So like, just like, be aware. Well, that's why the freaking newspaper put out that article because they were like, well, <sighs> we got to do it now. Did you? Before. They were like, we've got to pull this trigger. We don't have much time. The guy, it's Christine. like, it's like that. <laughs> listen, I studied journalism. I know a thing or two, okay? Christine, not very much. You know a thing or two about a thing or two. You really just <laughs> figured that out. That makes so much sense now. It's like that movie, The Post, where. It's exactly like The Post. <laughs> One, it's exactly <laughs> like The Post. Where he goes to his editor and he's like, you gotta listen. I don't know. I haven't seen it. I fell asleep on the plane while it was playing, so I, I, I'm not maybe the best person to reference it. But I do like to think um, Mark Ruffalo went to Brookfield, Connecticut, and was like, "You got to listen. This is our moment. <laughs> this child is predicting the future." And so the parade went ahead as, or, or how many? Seven years early. It, it really. I mean, you really just blew my mind because that probably is exactly how it went down because this uh, it happened a few weeks before they called the police and warned them a few weeks before that it actually One happened savvy journalist was like i've been waiting to write this story my whole career and i gotta do it before my chance is over and that journalist was mark ruffalo and that or christine like or Christine's in a different life ancestor being like something about this feels like it's gonna surpass generations um Okay, wow. Well, we've solved that fucking riddle, haven't we? Okay. <laughs> What's next? Hmm. Uh, oh, yeah. So the Warrens did warn the police, as we all know now, and apparently right. the local press. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the Warrens do say that out after everything that happened and of those exorcisms, there was a, one report that said it was actually six exorcisms, not three. Okay. I'm going to stick with three because I saw that most. I think, oh, or I think it was three, but there were two priests at each, which equals six priests. It, ugh, nah, I don't know. <laughs> Why is this all about equations and formulas? <laughs> if I knew that I was going to have to know this much math for fucking telling ghost stories one day, I would have paid attention. Um, That's what they should say in algebra. That'll get, <laughs> that'll get the youths. You need to know how to count so you know exactly how many demons are inside you of you. You want a podcast? You gotta... Here learn some basic addition <laughs> and also take a health class so you know about starch 
Um, so when the exorcism was over, they called the police and the Warrens say that the biggest mistake that happened out of all of this was that, um, Cheyenne, who was involved in a lot of the lesser exorcisms, he started to challenge the demons inside David, trying to coax them out of David. Ruh row. And Cheyenne was apparently, he like was very protective of the family and he hated seeing David in pain. And so he was saying like, take me, Hmm. I'm bigger, all this stuff. Also... This sounds very reminiscent of The Exorcist, which Debbie and her family have also said they loved that movie. Mm. So I don't know what that means, but there you have it. But yeah, so Cheyenne kept saying, come into me, leave the little lad alone, which is precious. Um, (laughs) The little lad. The little lad. Okay. (laughs) And once while challenging these demons, apparently he said something like, I'm not afraid of you, I'll fight you. And David, who could see these demons uh said back to cheyenne they're laughing at you which is terrifying so can you imagine 45 how many was it 45 total can you imagine going around the room being like one two three four five six yeah okay they're all they're all laughing all every every single one of them you are the laughing stock of this room how sad you're a clown um (laughs) so anyway after he challenged them nothing really happened but a few days later all of a sudden cheyenne got in a huge car crash where he, according to him, lost complete control of the car and watched it drive itself <gasps> into a tree. Oh, God. Again, if you're on the skeptical side of things, you can be like, okay, he got in a car crash and now he's blaming it on right related events. Um, but he swears that like he was not in control of the car. He tried to control the car and it yanked itself into a tree. Shortly after that, um, a few days later, so he ends up being unharmed, by the way, but uh, only a few days later, him and Debbie went back to the rental house and they were looking out the window and Cheyenne, apparently, when he looked out the window, was looking in the direction of this well um, on the property. And it apparently it was a well that the Warrens had told him not to go near <clears> because <throat> that was the well was one of the sites where David had seen the old man. And because he had challenged the demons, they were like, you're too vulnerable right now. Don't go near any of the sites where David has seen any of these demons. Right. So Cheyenne was on the property and just looking at a well, but he wasn't near it. But while he was looking at it, he all of a sudden kind of fell into this weird trance that Debbie remembers. And I thought you were going to par- say he fell into the well. I was like, how? I no. thought he was. Okay, okay. He okay. was just he looking out the window. Trance. His eye line fell into the well, I suppose. <laughs> okay. Um. And he said, there he is, the beast, there he is. And all of a sudden he started growling and Debbie started slapping him to try to get him out of this trance and he didn't react. And so that is when Debbie remembers him all of a sudden also becoming possessed by this demon. Oh no. Apparently it was, so Cheyenne, he said, there he is, there's the beast because he saw like the demon hiding in the well. And according to Cheyenne, when their eyes met him and the demon's eyes in the well, that was when he last remembers having like clear <gasps> autonomy, self auto like autonomy for himself. Oh that, no. Right? Yeah, um, I think so. so. <laughs> I don't know anymore. Sure. <laughs> so after that, apparently he doesn't remember much, but Debbie says that he started showing signs of possession. Specifically, there were five really scary times. Um, she didn't list all of them, but she did say, uh, one time in the middle of the night, he woke her up and stared at her and said, go to bed. Yeah. <laughs> Even no, though you. she was already in bed. Like, you woke me up. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Uh, another time he... Oh, and then after he said, go to bed, he got out of bed and started hitting all of the furniture and yelling about hell. 
Um, another <laughs> time they were at mass and he started freaking out about being there, which is was out of very out of character for him. He was like very much a happy churchgoer. Yeah. Um, another time Debbie heard two voices come out of his mouth at once, and uh-huh. that was the day that he killed Bono. <gasps> Ugh. Yeah. So let's talk about that day. Okay. Um, so their landlord was Alan Bono. He apparently, uh, when they were looking for a rental property and he offered a space for them, he also happened to manage a kennel and he, and Debbie was like, oh, I'm looking for a job. And so he, she started working for him at the kennel while they also were cleaning out his rental property. Okay. Um, and I guess he knew them he they were very good surface level friends where he would like take them out to lunch every now and then so like even though cheyenne didn't work for him sometimes he would like call sick into work just so he could go visit debbie and then he would take them out to lunch and so things like that um and right around the time that cheyenne was showing all these signs of possession and growling and going into trances and not knowing who he was on february 16th in 1981 Cheyenne called in sick to go visit Debbie at the kennel. He brought his sister. I think he also brought one of Debbie's sisters and Debbie's cousin because they all wanted to go. Since she worked at a kennel, they all wanted to see the dog. So I'm imagining this was just a precious scene. Mm. And uh, Bono decided to take them all to lunch. And this is off of the little sister's testimony. So one of the girls who was there. Okay. Um, Bono took them to lunch, depending on the report that you read uh either bono was drinking by himself or cheyenne was drinking with him and when they got back to the kennel bono was being belligerent and he grabbed one of the kids and i guess cheyenne got defensive and according to wanda the sister um she said that he didn't look like himself she tried to like shake him to like kind of wake up from his like weird state and he wouldn't move he just stared straight ahead and eventually just charged at bono oh my God. and apparently on him he had a five inch pocket knife and uh that's all and then uh his sister uh remembers him just kind of staring off not reacting and walking off into the woods oh my God. and he, she remembers seeing bono just standing there and then falling over <gasps> and apparently he had stabbed him a lot and uh cheyenne's lawyer later said that there were quote five four or five tremendous wounds mm. including one that extended from the stomach to the base of the heart <gasps> oh my so god like, slice yeah because you think of pocket knife you think of like little swiss army but five inch pocket knife jesus yeah it's basically a five inch just a knife yeah yeah point. yeah at that point yeah i guess you can put a butcher knife in your pocket too but yeah exactly um so anyway cheyenne was arrested and uh and bono ended up dying uh hours later in the hospital when he was arrested, Cheyenne told cops that they were fighting over Debbie, although there's no real proof of that. Um, and the cops originally wanted to consider this an open and shut case, but the Warrens heard about this and they said, no, 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 like, please look deeper into this, especially since we warned you that there would be a death coming up mm. in a town where there had never been a death before. And I guess David confirmed that his vision was of involved the family somehow, like knew that someone in his family was going to be involved in this death. David apparently, quote, saw the beast go into Cheyenne's body and it was the beast who committed the crime. So that was the Damn. the testimony they really fell into or leaned on. Right. Um, and so the family told the police that Cheyenne had visited the well before the murder when he was told not to. And his lawyer apparently tried to get Cheyenne a plea of not guilty by reason of demonic possession. 
So uh, the lawyer, again, his name was Martin Manella, and he found two cases in England where possession had been used. Neither of them ever made it to trial, but he used those two cases as reasoning for why they could use it right now. Right. And Manila said, quote, I could put the Pope on you. I could put the Pope on and he'd tell you that if a guy is demonically possessed, he is not responsible. And that was his big reasoning. That's like a threat, like a paramix. Like I could bring the Pope. Don't make me bring the Pope in here. Exactly. Don't make me turn this car around and visit the Vatican because he'll tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Don't you dare. Don't you fucking try it. (laughs) So uh, the trial was on October 28th in 1981. And apparently... Uh, the priests from these, quote, lesser exorcisms were supposed to be subpoenaed, but the church ended up ordering them to not publicly discuss their practices. Love the church, how they can just do anything ever that they want ever. Love it. Love it. Say it with me. Thanks, priests. Thanks, priests. <laughs> so the uh, diocese of Bridgeport, uh, or the area that they were near, I, I guess they said that we're not going to say anything except that the priests did work with David during a difficult time. That was all that they said. <laughs> um, okay. I've been to a Catholic church in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Have you? Maybe uh-huh. they, you, maybe they know these. Maybe, maybe they know I you. do. They were like, oh my God, it's the trashy bunny. Run quick. Oh no. She's back and it's <laughs> Easter Sunday. Get her out of <laughs> far, far away. No, you're, the trashy bunny comes on Easter Saturday and we all know that. Um, <laughs> So, of the people in that church, Father Nicholas Grieco um, in the Diocese of Bridgeport, this was his uh, official statement. Quote, The policy is not to speak to the press at this time. It would be true of any situation of a pastoral nature. No formal exorcism was ever asked for or performed. No one from the church has said one way or the other what was involved, and we declined to say. Mm. Apparently, they their reasoning for never performing an official exorcism, which is what some people might be wondering, is because apparently the bishop declined to authorize it because the family didn't consent to the psychological tests that the church would need. Oh. But the family disputes that and says, like, we literally took him to a psychiatrist. <laughs> we, we, right. Good point. Good point. Good point. Good point. Um, they apparently, when they did take him to a psychiatrist, all they found was that David had from what I can tell or from what I see in the reports, a quote, slight learning disability and trouble sleeping. But I, I don't, I don't know what that's like less tests... than you and I have. And we don't have, I know. Demons. I mean, you I, have a thousand. well, <laughs> I've I'm literally, hello. I have um, demons with a Z, so I don't really count, but yeah. You have emotional demons. I think <laughs> I have um, certainly <laughs> a lot of those. That's for sure. But so, uh, the family was like, we took him to get psychological testing and I, I'm not too sure of like the details on that, but it sounds like they got the wrong psychological testing, but the church wouldn't help them figure out what testing they needed to be able to get approved in the first place. So, uh, weird that, that was a weird argument. Also the Warrens are disputing that, um, when father Greco said no formal exorcism was ever asked or was ever asked for or performed, the Warrens are like, no, 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 we fucking asked for that. Like we wanted that. Yeah. Um, and Ed Warren said that the priests did in fact ask if they could do an exorcism. And this is a quote from Ed Warren. The two younger priests went directly to the Bishop. We have it on tape. We hope that the priests will do what's right and come in and testify. If they don't, we will have to subpoena them to testify and we will have to use our tapes to prove it. Wow. Apparently that didn't work anyway. They ended up not saying anything more. Mm. But the police chief of uh, his name is John Anderson. And he also wanted to speak to the priests during this investigation. But and he does confirm that the Warrens called him 
in advance to warn them about like this these references of violent acts from david oh wow and i mean he was really hell-bent on making sure that like this got taken seriously first of all it was the first homicide i kind of imagine as a police chief and like True. there's never been a homicide in your town and now there is one you're like mother and it's not like, even just like oh somebody like a robbery a botched robbery it's like oh it's your first homicide and also it was because of a bunch of demons and a possession he, i mean damn he literally there's a quote from him where he said after like 193 years since the town has been established not a homicide and he goes we couldn't have a simple uncomplicated murder exactly <laughs> like you couldn't even have just a straight like yeah black and white botched robbery situation nope well also this was like right this was a, a few years later but this was i think right around the time of the or was it it had to have been after the amityville right the amityville case was in the 70s yes which yeah, also as far makes as, like, me wonder Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt you there. No, but no. wasn't in the Amityville? Didn't the DeFeos like claim demonic possession? And they're yeah. Or the, the didn't the boy say like he murdered his whole family because he was possessed by demons? So is this not true? And oh. being the first, maybe this is the first documented one. Well, it was in the town, not in the state, right? They're saying that this is the like the one of the town, like the town or the U.S. the national first time oh of demon oh sorry of demon possession you're saying i don't know we'll have we'll we'll have to look back at that i don't know do you th was that claimed in court like as the defense because didn't maybe he just claimed like insanity i think he that's probably maybe what it was yeah. i don't remember at this point wow i really should know well it's been a long time since it's we covered that <laughs> since episode four was it four wow yeah uh okay well anyway yeah, imagine being the police chief of a murderless town, and now it's your—it's on your shoulders, and also it's full of demons, apparently, the story. And the Catholic Church is involved. I mean, God. And they're not helping. And no. uh, also, because the Amityville story had happened so recently, and it was pretty nearby, right? he was terrified as the police chief that this was just, their town was going to become the new Amityville. Right, right. And so he was like, not only am I dealing with a murder, which, yes, I'm probably well-trained for, but I've never had to deal with before. Also, like, I broke the, the fucking good curse, I suppose. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and now there's demons. And now also, like, people are flooding our town because they think it's a new Amityville, especially because the Warrens are involved. Yep. So yep, 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 it was yep. just not fun for him. So he was really desperate. He was like, I want the priest to talk to me. I want anyone to give me information because I'm at a loss here. Yeah. Um, but so anyway, that never happened. And the last thing I want to say is that, so Martin Manila, the attorney, and also the Warrens were both mocked at different times for trying to sensationalize the story for their own gain. The Warrens have dealt with that a lot in their history, um, but also the attorney was guilty of doing that too. He was just saying some really weird things where it just sounded like he didn't really care so much about the case. Maybe he cared about winning the case, but he didn't really care about the family at all. He was just like invested in the fact that this was a wild story that would like really make his name get out there. Uh. In terms of trying to defend uh, Cheyenne, this was a quote of his. Why the devil decided to pick on Alan Bono as the instrument of Arnie Johnson's destruction? Think about it. What's the guy's name? Bono, right? And what kind of name is Bono? Italian, right? So what does Bono mean in Italian? It means good, and evil likes to destroy good. Apparently for him, that means case fucking solved. What? 
that sounds a little QAnon-y of like, let's just like connect all of these little things. Hang on. There's a dot like 83 miles to the west. <laughs> let's just put a pin in that and then drag his red string all the way uh-huh. back here. Yep. I mean, that is okay. Sure. All right. He also wanted in during or in court, he also wanted people to uh, examine Alan Bono's clothing because he thought, quote, the lack of any blood rips or tears would help support the claim of demonic involvement. I wasn't there, but I guarantee there were some rips in clothing and blood considering he was sliced from the stomach to the heart. So I don't know what that guy was talking about there. Yeah. Or did he mean in the kids clothing? I don't know. I, he, I think he meant he wanted them to in look Bono's at his clothing. Yeah, in Bono's clothing, in the victim's clothing. So he was saying, oh, no, it, a demon did it, so he didn't ruin his clothes? Okay, whatever. Uh, he also said, quote, the wounds in Alan Bono's body were too deep for them to have been uh, the work of human hands, end quote. So he was really pushing for, like, hmm. no, 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 this is demonic possession. And the judge ultimately rejected the plea because he, quote, any testimony on the matter was unscientific and thus irrelevant. So Cheyenne ended up getting convicted of first-degree manslaughter and sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison. He was released in five. Damn. And Lorraine Warren, um, because if you've listened to me talk about some of her other cases, she likes to rank her cases out of 10 in terms of scariness. Um, And she ranked this 9.5 out of 10. Oh, shit. Wow. Because, uh, and the only thing that would have made it, the only thing that would have made it a 10 is if there was another catastrophe, apparently. I thought you were going to say one more demon. Just like one short. <laughs> 46 is where I draw the line. Um, but no, so he, she does have like a category, like a, a some sort of ranking system. And I guess very few of them ever hit in the eights or nines because that requires like a true full body possession or a death. Jeez. Um, something like that. I don't know the actual rankings, but nine is pretty hard to get. And this was a 9.5. That's yeah. So, uh, Cheyenne ended up marrying Debbie while he was incarcerated. And as of 2014, they were still together and Manila and the Warrens have both again, said some shady stuff. I mentioned this earlier and prioritizing going to the press with the story. Manila has been quoted saying, everyone is interested in this case. Everyone. We got calls from Australia, from Switzerland, from England, everywhere. When I went to London, they recognized me on the street. All the top studios are interested in this. All the top producers. Of course, my position is that we won't talk to them until the trial is over. My client is very important to me. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. Slick. And then Lorraine Warren, which is not a cute look. Lorraine, uh, when asked about this, she said, will we have to write a book about this? Yes, we will. Will we lecture about this? Yes, we will. And then asked if they were talking to movie producers. She said, no, we're not. Our agents at William Morris Agency are. Shut up. So Okay. All right, Lorraine. Calm down. And when challenged on selling books and like, you know, profiting off of these families, Um, She said, quote, why not inform the public? In informing the public, you are warning the public about trespassing in the supernatural. And then her husband said, instead of the church hiding facts, they should be yelling them from the rooftops. This low-key nonsense. I just can't stand it anymore. You mentioned demonology to a young priest and he almost grins. We're bringing home the positive, the reality of God, because that is the other end of the spectrum. So I think that would have been a much slicker way to handle the situation. Let him speak next time because Lorraine <laughs> saying, oh, my WME agents are going to handle the movie uh-huh. producing is like not Yikes. the greatest look for your uh, mm-hmm. val- validity. It's not cute. She ends no. up they ended up writing a book about it called The Demon from Connecticut. <laughs> and she said that the profits were going to be shared with the family. But apparently only like two thousand dollars was given to the family. 
And the book was republished in 2006, and David himself and his other brother Carl sued for, quote, violating the right to privacy, libel, and intentional affliction of emotional distress. Oh, wow. So there are some arguments that this was just the brother Carl. Others say it's the brother David, which makes this a lot more damning because David was involved in all this. But um, either way, Carl was definitely uh, suing them. And Carl, maybe David, also said that the case was a hoax and the Warren said that the book would make enough money to help Cheyenne get out of jail and that's why she should write the book and that she would help them get get Cheyenne out of jail. Carl ended up writing his own book called Alone Through the Valley, which was about his version of the events. And the Warrens say that the priests involved, the Warrens in response to getting sued, they said that the priests involved believe that the boy was possessed and that all the events were true. And their author of their book called Gerald Brittle said that he had hours of interviews from the family proving that they wanted the story told and they agreed on the story before he ever sent it out. Cheyenne and Debbie, on the other hand, defend the Warrens as well, saying that Debbie's family is just suing for money, but the possessions were completely true and they themselves were used as the main interviewers in that Discovery Channel episode of A Haunting. The two of them told their entire story. Then again, that episode was wildly exaggerated and they like gave it the green light. So I don't know what that tells you, but David or Judy or no one else was there. It was just Cheyenne and Debbie telling their side of the story. And it did seem very dramatic. There's also two movies, one from the eighties called the demon murder case, which stars Kevin Bacon and Andy Griffith. Oh, hell yeah. And this summer, uh, the third spinoff of the conjuring is going to be based on this story oh my god really so it's going to be called the conjuring the devil made me do it and it comes out in june Ooh, it's got goose cam that's creepy the end wow what is up with connecticut man they are just haunted as hell i mean there's the haunting in connecticut yeah the demon from connecticut next door is the amityville we got a lot of stuff going they on. married someone from there a demon well, indeed it's almost like it was kismet at this point. It's almost like I knew that that was a haunted state, and that's why. <laughs> this smells haunted. Let's go. Hmm. Okay. Well, thank you, Em. That was spooky. Thank you. Um, I have a story for you today, and it is noodles all the way to the top. Noodles oh. all the way to the top. That was a Sound- bunch of noodles falling was, off. Hold on. I was noodles say- all the way to the top. <laughs> It sounded like you had noodles in your mouth. I was yeah, like, oh, they were shit. falling everywhere. I'm so sorry. I love it. Um, I shouldn't talk and eat at the same time. Uh, <laughs> this is the story of the infamous White House Farm murders. I don't know anything about this. I didn't either. So, oops. But it is fascinating. So this took place in the 80s as well. Um, in 1985, in a small town in Essex, England called, I believe I'm pronouncing this right. This is how it seemed to be pronounced in the series I watched. Talshant Darcy. Talshant Darcy. Hmm. Okay. 36 years ago, in a crime that horrified and stunned the nation, three generations of the Bamber family were murdered in their own farmhouse. Mm. Okay. So there's an HBO series about this. I don't know if it was, I think it was initially on Netflix, but um, it's now on HBO. It's called The Murders at White House Farm. It's pretty recent. I binged it. It's six episodes. It's I really liked it. I thought it was just 
and it's obviously based on this story so it's it's based on a true story very creepy very well done uh there's like probably some dramatization like maybe they put a bed in or something like they did with that show you know what (laughs) some notes said that that bed was a water bed too which makes it extra no why didn't you tell me that that's the most horrifying fact of all the water bed really was like just the peak 80s wasn't it that's did you know my stepmom has been trying to give me a water bed since i moved here like she keeps threatening to hire a truck to bring it to my house my mom was a huge proponent of the waterbed and then she was the first person to be like as someone who lived that that trend let me tell you how fucking stupid it was it's terrible ever comes back don't you ever touch it because like obviously fucking accidental floods in your house also there's like just mold growing inside yeah they're disgusting it's awful also like no lumbar support lumbar support lumbar support lol i mean it's it's, it's all bad. It's all bad. It's all sloshy. They're terrible. I've slept on several because my stepmom is to this day a proponent of waterbeds um, and insists that I need to take her waterbed. And I'm like, where is it? And she said, it's <laughs> in the shed. And I said, when did you buy it? And she said, 1989. And I'm like, it's been in your outdoor in Ohio in the woods shed since 1989. No, thank you. I'm not The interested. lining of that is probably so thin. that Can you imagine? You- you even pick it up, it's going to fall apart. That's It's awful. just going to be filled with only mold, like solid. Maybe a better lumbar support with the mold inside it, but <laughs> just, yuck. Just take it and throw it away. Just tell her and you're going like, to take it. no trace of irony. Like, she is insisting upon it, and I'm like, do you not hear that you're trying to make me take your gross-ass waterbed? And she's like, it was very expensive. And I was like, yeah, in 19... 19- okay, I'm done. Anyway. <laughs> before we learned how inexpensive it should have been. Yes. Yeah, before we realized what a waste of freaking money that was. So anyway, so there's an HBO series. I really liked it. Um, it's based extensively on a book written by one of the people involved in this uh, case named Colin Caffell, and his book is called In Search of the Rainbow's End, and then another book that was written about the case called The Murders at White House Farm by Carol Ann Lee. So I'm just going to tell you what happened that night and in the months following. It is bonkers. So in the early hours of August 7th, Chelmsford, Chelmsford Police Station Ooh. received a call from Jeremy Bamber, the son of the Bamber family. He was 24 years old. He called the local police station and said he had gotten a phone call from his father at around 3 a.m. He said his dad had rung in a panic saying that Sheila, his sister, so there were there were two. I mean, I guess I'll just tell you now who's involved. So there's um, please. Two, yes, I would like two to know the names of the characters. <laughs> well, I was going to bring it in a more dramatic way in a couple bullets, but I might as well Got tell it. you now. So two grandparents, Neville and June, and then their two children, Jeremy and Sheila, and then Sheila's two kids who are twin boys. Jesus, that's like all the Duggars. Hang on, can you say that again? Wait. <laughs> yeah, so two grandparents, okay, two kids, uh-huh. and two grandkids. Oh, so, okay, that's less. I was like, awful. it's really not anything like like we have more family members than our own have families. But yeah, sure. so Neville and June are the grandparents. Then there's Sheila and Jeremy are the kids who are adults, like in their twenties. And then there are two twins, twin boys who are six years old, who are the grandkids. Got it. So that's who's involved in the story. So Jeremy, the son, calls police, says his dad, Neville, called him at 3 a.m. in a panic, saying that Sheila, the daughter, had gone berserk with a gun. He says during the call, the line had cut off after the sound of a gunshot, which obviously made him panic about his family's safety. So police were sent to White House Farm to investigate. So when they got there, they noticed that the house had been locked from the inside, 
and by the time police finally made their way in, they were met by a horrific scene. They found the corpses of five of the five family members uh, mm. with what they counted to be a total of 25 shots having <gasps> been fired at them. Oh, was it five per body? No, it was a mixture of okay. eight to the dad. I mean, it's... My thought was if it was like just one and done on four of them and one of them was really shot, it would like be a personal more of a personal attack i didn't know yeah no it's uh it was quite a a mix so the bodies included now i'm going to give you more detail about them so neville and june two 61 year olds their daughter 28 year old sheila and her twin sons nicholas and daniel both six all shot at the property neville was found in the kitchen slumped over a chair with evidence of a struggle surrounding him june was found on the floor of her bedroom with Sheila's body nearby, and the six-year-old twin boys, Daniel and Nicholas, were found in their beds and appear to have been killed in their sleep. Jesus. At least at least it was in their sleep. Yeah. I mean, at that least. was I mean, what the officer terrible. said. Like, the only, uh, the only glimmer of, like, hope in this whole case is that they died instantly. Right. But obviously just the most traumatic, gruesome situation. So Sheila was found holding a gun, a twenty-two caliber rifle which was determined to be the murder weapon. And it was lying on her chest, pointing towards her neck where the bullet had gone through. uh, And she was also holding a Bible. Mm. So Sheila had a history of mental health problems, mental illness. She'd been known to have psychotic episodes where she would bang her head against walls, sometimes even become violent. And she and Jeremy, her brother, had both been adopted by the Bambers as babies, but from different families. And uh, a few years after she'd been adopted, she'd been diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder. And this was something that was kind of kept quiet by her family. They were kind of traditional, didn't like this news to get out. But she was greatly suffering from uh, her illness. So doctors described her as believing that she had been given powers by the devil. um, And she believed she could project evil onto others, including her two sons. Mm. And she thought that she could project evil onto them and make them be violent. Uh, She had in the past spoken about taking her own life, but at the time, doctors didn't believe she was a genuine risk to herself or others. And actually, she had been hospitalized several times, the last of which was only months before the murder. So she'd actually just gotten out of the hospital a couple months before these murders took place. So when she was discharged, uh, Sheila was put on strong medication. She had to have a monthly injection of like an antipsychotic drug. It had a really strong sedative effect. She was pretty miserable, but... She was kind of forced to be taking these really strong drugs. Um, And her mental health issues were believed to have been worsened by her relationship with her mother, June, who also had severe mental health issues. Uh, Some people tried to make that connection, but they weren't genetically, they weren't blood related. So, you know, there may have been a connection, but it wasn't genetic, if that makes sense. Yeah, got it. So, um It's reported that Sheila didn't think June, her mother, who was extremely religious, agreed with her lifestyle, uh, which included partying and drugs. She also worked for a while as a model. Uh, And when Sheila was 17, she fell pregnant by her then-boyfriend, Colin Caffell. But June and Neville, her parents, arranged an abortion for her. So the relationship with her mother became pretty strained after that, if not, like, completely destroyed. And then when June, her mother, found her sunbathing naked with her boyfriend, it just got way out of control. And like I said, Uh the parents were really, 
religious. Mm -hmm. So this was just not okay. Uh, She'd already gotten pregnant. She was doing drugs. She worked as a model. None of this was flying with the parents. It wasn't godly. It wasn't godly. And to the point that June started calling her own daughter the devil's child. Um, Oh, well, that's healthy. Super good. Yeah, Mm -hmm. super not good relationship. Um, And after the abortion that her parents basically arranged for her to have, uh, Sheila suffered several miscarriages before marrying Colin, and then they had their two twin sons, Daniel and Nicholas. Okay. However, Colin had an affair, and the couple split only five months after the boys were born. So they split up, and this also marked quite a decline in her mental health. Um, she was pretty unstable. She was hospitalized several times. And for a while, up until their death, the boys were pretty much in custody of their father. Okay. Got so it. a week-long visit to White House Farm had been arranged for August 19, 1985 at the request of the Bambers, the grandparents. They wanted uh, Nicholas and Daniel to visit with Sheila before going on vacation to Norway with their father. So Daniel and Nicholas told their dad they did not want to stay with their grandparents, and they were very against staying there. They said they didn't like it there. They didn't feel comfortable there. June made them pray on their knees. They Mm. were uncomfortable. Um, And on their way in the car, they told their dad, like, we want you to talk about this to grandma. And they were only six. So they were really scared. They didn't want to be there, which makes it even sadder that this happened only a few days later. So and Daniel, I guess one of the boys had become a vegetarian and was worried that his grandparents would force him to eat meat. So when they dropped him off at the house on August 5th, the father was like, you know, it'll be okay. You'll be fine. But obviously he had no idea he would never see his twin sons alive. Oh my God. Can you imagine the guilt? No. Yeah. It's just so heavy and awful. Like, how would you ever expect that? You know, tabloids uh, labeled the murder suicide girl kills twins and parents. This was like wildly sensationalized i mean this girl was a model i shouldn't say girl this woman 28 years old was a model she was known to be occasionally do drugs she had just been hospitalized for schizophrenia she now murdered her parents and her kids i mean it was just like the perfect storm for a small town story that's, to that's go. a media buzz right there completely i, I mean just every buzzword every buzzword is like exactly what she was hitting so yeah it was like mental illness quote unquote she went crazy she killed her own children uh Mm -hmm. she's a model so she's beautiful they could use the photos of her you know i mean it's just like extra icky um so they called it suicide girl kills twins and parents that was kind of the label it was given almost immediately uh so nine days after the murders mourners packed the small village church to celebrate the lives of june neville and sheila uh, and then the two young boys' funeral was planned for uh, later on. So I like that they had a separate funeral for the kids. Yeah, I thought that was kind of nice as well. They had their own ceremony. Um, and also that way you could make it, you could make sure there was less risk of there being like media being super disrespectful and like there could be like yeah maybe a more closed family. Yeah, ceremony. exactly. That's a good point. And like like I said, the grandparents were really religious. The boys were not religious. The, their father was not right. religious. So he could have their own, his own funeral for them separately. Right. While obviously his ex-wife or his ex-partner and her family had their own like very Catholic funeral. Or I right, don't know if it was Catholic, true. but it was very religious. Um, So yeah, it, it was a nice, at least one nice part of this. So Jeremy, so he's the one, he's the only surviving member of like the immediate family. He's the son who's 
24. And he arrived to the funeral, Jeremy did, with his girlfriend, Julie Mugford, and his extended family members. So as this uh, procession is going toward the church, he has a breakdown. He has to be propped up by Julie. He is devastated. He's grieving. There's still photos available of, like, the funeral. And to the world, he appeared completely devastated and emotionally destroyed. Mm-hmm. As you may have guessed, I used a fun keyword here called appeared devastated. Yes, I did. I did pick that up and I didn't <laughs> know where we were going, but I liked I in terms of storytelling, it, I was intrigued. So. Oh, good. I'm glad you're intrigued because I'm about to uh, go straight into that. So family members, even though on the outside, Jeremy seemed... Um, to the media at least, very devastated. Something wasn't sitting right for family members. So Colin, the father of the twin boys and uh, Sheila's ex-partner, claimed as soon as the camera stopped rolling, Jeremy changed. So in his book, Colin said he rev- uh, that his brother-in-law started cracking jokes and laughing after the funeral. And he later told The Telegraph that Jeremy started making comments about how he couldn't wait to get back to the house with Julie and have some fun. Oh, And then in the car on the way to the crematorium, he started kind of flirting with Julie, telling her what he'd like to be doing to her later in the afternoon, like in front of the whole family. Sir, oh my gosh, chill out. It's a funeral. His parents and sister's funeral. Oh my God. And Colin said about this, really sick, and I thought there's something weird going on here. And like, remember, literally his two six-year-old boys have just been murdered and his his ex, the mother of his children... Uh, it, it's it's just really kind of off-putting. So the funeral was broadcast on the news. Obviously, so many people tuned in to watch to see Jeremy's reaction to his family's murder. Um, it went viral for the time and drew, uh, like I said, a whole host of media attention. And the author I mentioned earlier, Carol Ann Lee, remembers that she was interviewing different police officers during the case. And one of them even said, that his daughter at the time was so interested in Jeremy because of how he looked, like he was like a handsome guy. Uh-huh. And the daughter was saying, was saving the newspapers and asking her dad, like, like how, what is Jeremy like in real life? Oh, my because God. Because he was now all over the media. He was this devastated son of this family and Feels an very Ted, guy. Ted Bundy. Yeah, he's like, he's like charming in that sick way that mm-hmm. draws attention, but within his own circles people are like no this guy's fucked up Mm. so uh, let's see what was jeremy like well i'll tell Uh you so like his sister sheila jeremy was adopted by june and neville when he was only a baby but like i said it was a different from a different set of parents he was put up for adoption after his biological mother a student midwife had an affair with a married army sergeant and they actually later went on to marry and have other children Neville and June adopted Jeremy when he was six months old. They sent him to a range of good private schools, um, private boarding schools. However, Jeremy wasn't happy at any school he went to. Um, at one school specifically, he was subject to bullying and a sexual assault. And after his studies, Neville paid, so Neville, uh, Jeremy's dad, Neville paid for Jeremy to go traveling in Australia and New Zealand, where he's said to have attended a scuba diving course, broken into a jeweler's, oh. and boasted about smuggling heroin <laughs> oh okay that escalated very quickly from sure I would scuba, did. like you're showing like a powerpoint slide of your photos to your family like like what I, how scuba trip <laughs> how i spent my summer like your, yeah, your like, like third grade report. presentation yeah uh scuba diving and then all of a sudden it's like 
bags of heroin yeah so kind of <laughs> quite an it's not, escalation it's not funny uh but so there was like obviously some family drama there and the like i said they're not the type of family to talk about their skeletons openly and so even while he was in australia new zealand his dad had to send over money to kind of bail him out when he got in trouble mm-hmm. uh so they were not super proud of him for that reason Meanwhile, their daughter is really, you know, ill, and there's just a lot of, like, hidden stuff that they tried to keep behind closed doors right. that is now basically coming out once this murder happens. So when he returned home from his wonderful trip, his his relaxing vacation. Uh, yeah. in- <laughs> you know it well. You know it well. <laughs> you remember the PowerPoint. Uh, the spinning word, our custom animation <laughs> whole thing. <laughs> It's pretty. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty powerful stuff. I would say. Uh-huh. I would say so for sure. The, the, <laughs> the, the clip art of heroin was really fun. I, I think. Love how many options they provide for that. Yeah, it's, it's fun. Just like Clippy just lets you pick from a whole range. It's like I I see you're making a report. Are you going to be discussing heroin, hard and drugs, <laughs> burglary? Oh well, maybe you could find this link. I have just the thing. Zillennials are like, what the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) I know. Sorry. Had to be there. So when he returned home in 1982, Jeremy's father continued to provide for him. He set him up with a cottage, a car, gave him a percentage of the family company, even gave gave him a job where he was paid 170 pounds a week. So it seemed like Jeremy was basically being taken care of by his parents, but he had some issues with his family. So let's just say he he always felt like his sister was loved more than him he felt like he was always kind of the outcast even though his parents were like continuously bailing him out supporting him financially he was he was being loved unconditionally he yeah (laughs) at least it seems i don't know yeah seemingly he just had a lot of issues as far as like feeling like he was the second fiddle so to say to his sister um so like i said something wasn't sitting right with colin the father of the two boys At the funeral, Jeremy was seen laughing and joking after the burial. He was seen coming down the stairs in a Hugo Boss suit, which he opened and pointed at the label where it says boss and said, that's me now. I'm the boss. I'm the boss. That's that's not Hoboken style, Hoboken style at a six-year-old's funeral. Not quite. Oh, shit. Oh, I did not realize it was at a funeral. My bad. Okay, that's not Hoboken style. (laughs) That's not Hoboken style. We're we're still at the funeral. Um, I totally removed myself from that as soon as I heard an opportunity to talk about being the boss. Uh, no, yeah, I mean, he I was not take the boss. it back. You can be the boss, but he was not the boss. I take it back. I didn't mean it. Okay, sorry. So Colin noticed that in the days after the funeral, Jeremy was wanting to go out partying. He was like spending all this money he had gotten from his parents' death. Um, in fact, shortly after the funeral, uh, Jeremy traveled to Amsterdam with his girlfriend Julie Mugford and a friend. He spent a ton of money on weed. He even started selling and giving away his parents' property from the farm. So, like, he had an antique dealer come over right away and started selling off their basically, like, priceless family heirlooms and furniture and his dad's army medals. He's, like, like not messing around this He guy. does not give a shit. Wow. He even sold his mom's car. Oh, no, sorry. He gave his mom's car to his girlfriend, Julie's mom, and he tried to sell his dad's car in the newspaper for 900 pounds. He put an ad out. Like, he's just trying to rake in as much cash as possible, buying himself suits, taking vacations, spending money on drugs. Like, I mean, also, like, at this, I mean, I don't know if it's because we just hear stories like this every week, but, like, how did he not think that that was going to not be a good look? Yeah, 
I think he just didn't. He just wasn't thinking. Well, I think he was just one of those guys, one of those murderers that we see who just thinks they're invincible. Like he's just has Fair. this idea in his head that he he gets to do what he wants because he deserves it and things are going to go his way. And um, yeah, spoiler alert, they kind of don't eventually. <laughs> Otherwise, um, we wouldn't be able to tell this story, would we? <laughs> yeah. Well, I was, well, I'll tell you about it later, but you know, people do get away with shit. That's for true. Okay, bad that's police true. work and that kind of thing. And that was a huge problem. So, I mean, I'll tell oh. you about it. But he almost, not almost, but let's just say there was uh, definitely some possibility that he was going to get away with it. Uh, <gasps> like some pretty strong possibility. So, oh. uh, as the weeks went on, his behavior got stranger. He found photos of his sister, Sheila, like her modeling photos, semi-nude. He met with a British tabloid and tried to sell the photos. Oh, my God. Yes. Okay. And... Okay. He demanded 20,000 pounds for the photos, which were taken, like I said, during Sheila's modeling career. And the tabloids refused it, uh, surprisingly, but instead published an article called Jeremy Bamber Tries to Sell Nude Pictures of Thank Sheila you. to the Sun newspaper, which I was like, wait, that's a way better story. And it's free. <laughs> like, honestly, now I love the press. Like, I'm loving for the once. press today. Like, they're on the right well, side of history. Fair, well, to be fair, they wanted to buy it, but he was asking for 20,000 pounds and they were like, we don't have 20,000 pounds. Oh. And I mean, there's a Never reason they met to buy the photos of the nude sister who had died. Um, That's fair. That's okay. So, like, they did meet, but when he asked for 20,000 pounds, they were like, are you joking? We don't have 20,000 pounds to give you for some photos. And then he said, well, fine, I'm going to bring them to somebody else then. And so then the next day they ran an article like, okay, we can play this our well, own let's, way. Let's, let's rephrase then. I don't entirely love the press, <laughs> but I really respect their sassy choices in terms of rebuttal. It was a great twist. I didn't, I didn't really see it coming <laughs> it was a nice volley it was a nice rally if you will. yeah like a back and forth yeah they came back pretty hard and i thought that was a really great return because i didn't expect it i was like because <laughs> of course they're gonna buy the nude photos if you'd yeah. given them the nude photos they would have run them but um i just love that they went with that instead so it's probably worth noting at this point as we as i like to say a lot um everyone grieves differently there's no like uh only one way uh healthy way to grieve However, selling nude photos of your dead sister right after her murder probably isn't the most classy way to deal with. It's definitely a more extreme way to handle it. Yeah, I would say it's not Hoboken style, but I don't, I'm not the expert. Look, no, it's certainly not Hoboken style. Let me take this moment again to apologize to the cake (laughs) boss. I didn't, I didn't mean it. I wasn't paying attention. I should have. I'm sorry. I tried to insert not. You tried. Sentence, you tried, but... and I was too ready for the opportunity to say yeah, to that's Hoboken style. Speaking of volleyball, I really set you up there to spike that, and <laughs> you kind of we kind of yeah. miscommunicated where the ball was going. But yeah, so while people do grieve differently, um, this is pretty much, in my opinion, uh, particularly callous and quite frankly, somewhat evil, (laughs) in Mm -hmm. my opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, And it wasn't just Colin and their close family who who started to become suspicious. So uh, one police officer had watched the funeral and felt Jeremy's breakdown was staged. Um, He pointed at him on the TV and said, that's who really did it. And basically the whole miniseries is kind of telling the story of this one police officer named Stan, who the whole time is like something is off here because pretty much from the get-go, this was ruled a murder-suicide. Mm. Um, and so Stan was the guy who from the beginning kind of said, 
something's off something's off we have to take a closer look he was getting like railroaded by the police saying like you're going to be fired if you talk about this anymore we're closing this case you know and so well snaps for stan i know and i wanted to bring that up because at the end of the miniseries they say you know like he never really got the commendation or anything he deserved for for keeping this like case going right but so yeah snaps for stan so stan the whole time was like something's up with this kid i don't feel good about this even though basically everyone else at the time was like keep it down we've got this handled don't tell us we're doing a bad job Mm. this is clearly an open shut case so anyway it was only when jeremy's relationship with julie his girlfriend began to crack that the truth started to really come out so she got pissed when jeremy started seeing other women like very openly i don't know how true this was but in the miniseries they kind of had him they had a guy visit from New Zealand that he had supposedly met on his trip that he was lovers with. And mm-hmm. so, again, I know that the show was also a drama miniseries somewhat right. fictionalized, so I don't know how true that is. But it was pretty clear that he kind of didn't give a shit about Julie either. And, I mean, that's not surprising. That kind, I mean, that makes sense to me in terms of, like, this guy already thought he could get away with everything. The real yes. final test was, like, getting, like, taking advantage of the person who was probably his closest confidant, right? Yes. And he kept calling her his best friend. I mean, it was very clear that he was using her. And, you know, she clearly, like, loved him. And he didn't mm. really care. <laughs> and was he, was, was he doing things for her through all this i can't remember like was she was he buying her stuff too yeah so he they went on vacation together to amsterdam um he had bought her a new dress with some money he had gotten so she was definitely and in the series as well i don't know how true this is but the the officer the sergeant stan was very kind of wary of her because she seemed like she wasn't saying something that she Mm. knew and seemed kind of like quiet and troubled almost got it so it was when jeremy really started fucking around on her that she got pissed Mm -hmm. she decided she had to come clean so a month after the murders on september 7th 1985 julie went to the police and said i have to change my statement so previously she had told police that jeremy's version of events was true that uh, he had phoned her on the night of the murders worried about his family But in this new statement, she confessed that Jeremy had told her before the murders that he was planning for a while to kill his family. Uh, He said, I'm sorry, she said that Jeremy had told her he wanted to get rid of them all. Mm. And on August 6th, he had spoken to her about the crimes and the hefty family inheritance of 500,000 pounds being up for grabs. And he called her and said that it was tonight or never. And at this point, they're kind of like, so you knew in advance that your boyfriend was going to murder his family and you didn't say anything. And her response was always, I loved him, which is like, Ugh. uh, this is not a healthy situation. So is she now considered an accomplice and uh, in trouble herself? No, because essentially the only thing they got her on were she did lie to the police, but she had also brought them their guy. Um, and I think... There wasn't much she was really part of except omitting details or omitting the truth Mm. from police. So, yeah, she had taken a month before she came forward, but it wasn't enough for them to, like, imprison her, basically. Um, Instead, they just used her testimony in court. So uh, Jeremy was arrested the next day after Julie's new statement was taken. 
Obviously, this turned the whole case upside down publicly. People were like, how on earth could it be Jeremy? Like, wouldn't the police have noticed this before? Right. If he killed his whole family, why are we only hearing about this now, a month later? Right. Well, uh, behind the scenes, there were some things that the public didn't realize. First of all, the crime scene was never fully secured or properly searched. There was entire bouts of evidence that were never recorded. Oh. And the police were so convinced that Sheila was the killer that within days, they just started destroying the evidence because essentially Uh. Jeremy said, they said, well, what do you want us to do with this house full of stuff? And he said, oh, it's too painful. I want you to burn it all. So they burned the mattresses. They burned the clothes. They burned everything. Genius. But also like, ugh. Like, that's I know. terrible. And, and meanwhile, it's like if, I was going to say that Stan guy is laughing in the corner being like, I fucking told you. Like, come on. like Yeah. And it was actually really horrible to watch because they're burning all this stuff. And it was, it was a, a whole month before this woman came forward. So this whole time Stan's watching them just burn evidence. And he's like, I know this isn't how it look or like Mm. this isn't how you guys are saying it looks and you're burning all the evidence that we could use to put somebody else behind bars and so it was like almost it was really frustrating to watch wow you weren't kidding because i i said earlier like how how could he possibly get away with this and you're like oh he really almost did wow yeah it's scary and i mean if he had played his cards better and not acted like such a fucking narcissist he probably could have easily gotten away with it if he hadn't like taunted his girlfriend and like yeah. brought lovers over to their house yep. and like yep. basically made out with them in front of her and just mentally like gave anguished her and that's probably not a verb. Um, but you know, like totally taken advantage of this like weird invincibility he felt, he probably could have gotten away with it. That's terrifying. It's pretty terrifying that there's a lot of crime. Sorry, I'm I'm totally interrupting you again. No, no, go. It's wild to think that there's so much crime out there that probably could absolutely be gotten away with if someone just didn't do that one last thing or didn't yes. decide to be decide to have their their confidence elevated that much that day. Yeah, it's like that narcissistic like flew too close to the sun. He felt too powerful, mm-hmm. invincible and it came back to bite him in the ass. But like after a month, he was basically like, I got away with this. He was vacationing. He was buying himself new suits and they were burning all the evidence. So it was like, shit, you know, <laughs> it was getting That's insane. That's it was insane. really scary to watch. Um, and again, this is a really small town. Like you were saying about the Connecticut murder. Like this isn't normal that a whole family is massacred. Right. And this woman had just gotten out of a mental hospital for lack of a better term and had been known by her doctors to be violent and thought her kids had the devil in them so it was to them pretty cut and dry and totally understandable too yes. like yeah i get it like i would i wouldn't fight them on that so yeah and remember like the the house was locked from the inside that was a huge point in mm-hmm. the case that i will explain later but when they got there the house was locked and wow that seemed pretty open and shut to them um but not to stan not Thank stand. God for Stan. Big Stan. <laughs> we stand, Stan. We st- don't. We're the Stan Stans. We're the Stans of Stan. Welcome. We're the Stan Stans. Yes. Thanks for having us tonight. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, so they started burning mattresses, clothes, etc. Pretty immediately, anything with blood on it, they were burning to help with Jeremy's mental state and his trauma. They burned bedding, carpets, uh, so so as not to upset Jeremy. The rifle that had been found on Sheila's body was moved several times by officers who weren't wearing gloves. Oh, my God. Not examined for fingerprints until weeks later. Uh, There were photos from the crime crime scene that showed the gun in multiple locations when, like, nothing should have been touched, obviously. 
and several pieces of evidence such as the Bible found with Sheila were never examined at all for fingerprints or anything. They didn't even examine Jeremy's clothes. Yeah, sorry. So, no, so we were like caught up enough on technology that like investigating a crime scene was supposed to have happened, right? Yeah. I mean, this was the mid 80s. So, so like they should have fingerprints known... should have been taken. Okay. I'm just <laughs> I'm just making sure that like I get it was like a cut and dry case for them, but shouldn't they have still like collected something yeah and that was a huge controversy as well of just like the the officers who arrived on scene didn't secure it properly which we see so many times Mm -hmm. i mean even to this day that if they show up and they're like this was a suicide and that's that and that's the mindset and nothing's secured then it's like from then on everything's tainted yeah even if they realize later that they could have been wrong so Mm -hmm. yeah it was just from the start it was approached poorly (laughs) right right yeah yeah oh poor stan um So uh, Jeremy's clothes weren't examined until a month after the murders and officers who dealt with him wrote their statements weeks after the events or weeks after talking to him. Sheila's, June's, and Neville's bodies were released within days of the murders and he, Jeremy, had them all cremated. Oh oh my God. (laughs) It was so infuriating to watch. Okay. Yikes. Um, And remember, they were really religious. Mm. they don't want to be cremated that's not what you do in the catholic church you get buried and so excellent point it was shady in and of itself but also once you burn an entire body there's not much else you can test for you know right so he had them all cremated and so of course you're hearing this it's like how had he gotten away with this well like i said jeremy was kind of a charming mofo he sweet talked the police from the beginning uh, Carol Ann Lee, who wrote that book I mentioned, interviewed quite a, a few of the police officers who worked on the case, including some of them that had showed up, shown up that night. And they said that the way Jeremy talked about Sheila, his sister, was not very pleasant. He kind of perpetuated this idea that she was crazy, quote unquote, had breakdowns to prime them. Because before they even went into the house, he was like, oh, well, my sister just got out of the mental hospital. She's, quote unquote, crazy. Right. She's dangerous. So, of course... He was priming them from the start to think that Sheila had done something terrible. Mm. Um, and that's just kind of what they ran with without Why thinking not? of other options. Why, Why not? Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> Why not? Yikes. Oh, my God. So what was taken as fact then later came into question. So the first thing that kind of became a turning point in the case was the phone call that Jeremy had made to police on the night of the murder. So when Jeremy had called the police, he didn't call the equivalent of our 911, which is 999. He didn't call 999. He found a telephone book, like a Yellow Pages, and went and found the local police station's number Uh. in the phone book and called that number. And apparently, at least according to the series, underneath it, they had him read it in court. I don't know if this was just a dramatization or or what but in the phone book apparently underneath the police station's number it says if this is an emergency call 999 oh, and yet really? he still called the local police station you know when you call your doctor and yeah. they're like if this is a medical emergency please hang up and dial 911 yeah. sort of like that where they're like don't call your local police station at 3 a.m if someone's if your whole family's being murdered right like, exactly call emergency numbers yeah so for sure suspicious yeah, so strange from the get-go. Um, so instead of 99, he went through the phone book, found the number of the local police station. He told everybody he thought it would be better to keep it local, whatever that means. Uh, okay, and keep it in the family, you know. Keep it, keep it close to the vest. Yeah. Which also doesn't make sense because, like, you're wasting time looking up 
finding the phone book, looking up a phone number. Right. What? Just dilly-dallying, you know? Just dilly-dallying left and right. Mm -hmm. Noodles all the way to the top. Noodles. So, oh, the other part was that he said his dad had called and said his sister was going berserk with a gun. But they're like, well, if your dad, A, if your dad called you and said, oh, my God, your sister's going berserk. She's killing us all. Wouldn't you call 999? Mm-hmm. Second of all, wouldn't he have called 999? Right. Why is he calling Jeremy to say your sister's going berserk? That's a good point. I was going to say, wouldn't you be able to see phone records of them talking to each other? But that's so much smarter. It's like, So yeah. apparently they don't oh. keep phone records of calls made there was a whole thing about that where they don't keep phone records made within a certain i don't know the details but that was part of it too where they just weren't able to track that but yeah so why would he call right no his son to say i'm about to get shot in the head yeah um strange so now there was the idea of whether sheila could have used this gun so sheila was not experienced with firearms Colin, uh, Sheila's ex, was interviewed on a podcast called The Murders at White House Farm. Mm. And he said, I know Sheila never fired a gun in her life. When I found out it was a 22 rifle rather than a shotgun that killed them, another friend who is a marksman said that if she never fired a gun in her life, she would never have been able to kill someone with a 22 rifle. You need to be a good shot. And every bullet found its target. Oh. There were 23 or something bullets, which would have meant reloading the rifle, which you would never have any which she would never have had any idea how to do. As soon as that was pointed out to me, I knew she couldn't have done it at all, ever. Because what you need to point out to an American audience is that people in Great Britain don't know about firearms. (laughs) (laughs) We don't have gun laws. It is illegal to carry a gun. Farmers are allowed them to shoot vermin. That's it. So Jeremy, on the night that the police came, told police, hey, my sister knows how to shoot a gun. We used to do target practice together. And... Later on down the line, every single person who knew Sheila was like, no way. She didn't shoot any guns. She didn't know how to shoot a gun. And they asked Jeremy, like, didn't she say that? And he's like, I don't remember ever saying that. Oh. So totally changed his story. Uh Mm -hmm. Jeremy's team disputed this, saying, well, she lived on a farm, so maybe she did learn how to carry or how to shoot a gun. Uh, But it's just most people who knew her were like, no, like, she has a perfect manicure still after (laughs) this whole murder. Like, she didn't shoot 23 bullets. Right directly into everyone's head like mm-hmm. it's just not and it, especially because the drugs she was on um were very drowsy they, inducing right yes yes they were uh what do you call them tranquilizers and they also caused her to shake a lot so she oh. had a lot of trouble even making herself a cup of coffee lighting a cigarette let alone like she's shooting. not gonna load a gun 20 plus times yeah and and like shoot people directly at their target mm-hmm. you know so yeah it was it was really not likely Um, She also, fun fact, was not wearing a dress with pockets, so she would have had to somehow store the bullets that she was carrying around the house and shooting with two hands, Mm -hmm. so also kind of unlikely. So like I said, on top of all that, the medication she was on made her very unsteady, shaky. They were tranquilizers. It seemed more and more likely that in her state, she would have, even if she had gone quote-unquote crazy or had a psychotic episode, that she would have even been able to physically pull this off. So the next staggering piece of evidence, in my mind, is that Sheila had been shot twice. Right. So twice in the head. Oh, so she, okay, yeah. Hmm. She (laughs) didn't do it. (laughs) So very, very, very unlikely that somebody who had um, 
shot themselves once in the head would then be able to shoot themselves again in the head. However, the coroner did say he has seen it before if you miss and, you know, it's more like a flesh wound than actually through the spine or the brain. So it is possible. So for a while they just went with it because the coroner said, I've seen it twice before. Um, So it is possible, technically. However... Now, this is very... Okay, actually, I don't want to say it yet because it's just a really crazy fact. I'm going to get to it when it's more of a surprise. Okay. Okay. So on top of all this, Sheila's body wasn't found with anyone else's blood or residue on it, which if she killed four other people, you would think she would have had at least some of their blood on her. Uh, So now there's the fact of the silencer. So if you think about it, if somebody's shooting the family members and the boys are still in bed... It was sort of like, how is he shooting all these people? Or sorry, how is Sheila shooting all these people mm-hmm. without waking anybody up? But the gun had not been found with a silencer on it. And strangely enough, Neville, the grandfather, had always kept the silencer on the rifle. Hmm. So the cousins of the family were kind of like, well, this is odd. Because if she had been shooting everybody, they would have woken up and... This silencer was always with the gun, and now it's gone. Right. So the cousins went digging around, and on August 10th, they found in Neville's office uh, the silencer. Oh. It was found in a gun cupboard, and it had blood on it and a gray hair. So they called the police. They called Stan, and Stan came over, and they were like, look what we have. And he was like, oh, God, you guys have been touching this, huh? And they were like, (laughs) yeah. Stan is like, motherfucker. Every time. Are you kidding me? Every time. And it gets worse because they give him the thing and he's like, I didn't bring any evidence bags. So they he puts the silencer in a paper towel tube and tapes up the ends because, like, sure, you don't want to touch it. But the gray hair fell off on the way oh to the, my God. the station. So they lost the hair. And oh at first God. they're like, well, this is a hunting rifle. There might be blood on it. It's not that abnormal. But they tested the blood and found that it was Sheila's. Mm. And remember, this is on the silencer they found in a gun cupboard. Right. So what that means is she would have had to shoot her family, shoot herself with the silencer, taken the silencer off, gone and put it in the gun cupboard, gone back upstairs and shot herself a second time without the silencer. Right. So at first, everyone's like, well, how do we even use that as an argument? Like, what does it mean? Well, fun fact. If you put the silencer on the gun, it adds quite a bit of length. Mm -hmm. And they determined that... I think she was five foot six or five foot seven. If she had held the gun to her throat, to her chin, with the silencer on it, she would not have been able to reach the trigger. Interesting. And so it was only once the silencer was removed that it could be placed in a position where she would be able to shoot herself. Got it. In the head. Got it. Got it. So it's almost like either she, for whatever reason, removed the silencer, put it away in a cupboard, came back and shot herself, or somebody else. Just did it. Shot her, (laughs) then said, oh, I want to stage this to look like she killed herself, but I need to remove the silencer so it looks like she could actually pull it off. Right. So, Bamber, Jeremy, he told the police that his ex, Julie, was lying because she was jealous because he had broken up with her and she was just, basically, they framed it as a woman scorned. And um, to be fair, it wasn't a good look for her because it had been a month. She hadn't said a word against him. Now he dumps her goes off with another person Mm. and suddenly she comes to the police like he did it not a great look um at least not at all for the defense was very easily able to take that and be like oh you're just jealous and this is the 80s you know they were able to turn her into kind of like this 
crying, dramatic, <laughs> uh, desperate girl who just wanted to get back at her boyfriend who left her. Oh my gosh. Um, so not a super good look, but she was their main witness. So they basically had to go on her word and prove that Jeremy had done it, not Sheila. So Jeremy was released on bail on September 13th. And pretty immediately, he went to Saint-Tropez for vacation, where he partied it up, hooked up with people, um, had the time of his life. And he returned to England on September 29th, where he was arrested and charged pretty immediately with the murders. So Jeremy's trial began on October 3rd, 1986. It lasted 18 days. And basically, the prosecution argued that... Jeremy, motivated by hatred and greed, had left his family's farm around 10 p.m. on August 6, 1985, after having dinner with his family to drive home. Later, sometime in the early hours of the uh, morning of August 7th, he had returned to the farm on his mother's bicycle, which he had borrowed a few days earlier, taking a back route that avoided main roads. He approached the farmhouse from the back and entered the house through a downstairs window, took the rifle with the silencer attached, went upstairs, shot his mother june in her bed she actually had managed to walk a few steps before collapsing and dying Mm. he then shot his dad neville in the bedroom too but neville was able to get downstairs where he and jeremy fought in the kitchen before bamber for jeremy shot him four times twice in the temple and twice to the top of his head Mm. um he had also shot sheila in the main bedroom next to her mother and had shot the children in their beds as they slept. Wow. Um, and that was done last. Again, he had the silencer on, according to their argument. Jeremy then arranged the scene to make it appear like Sheila was the killer. He discovered that she couldn't have reached the trigger with the silencer attached, so he removed it, returned it to the gun cupboard, then just, like, sprinkled in a little religious theme by putting a Bible on her, yep. uh, which, you know, she had that history of having delusions of the devil so he really played right into that and made it look as though she were in that kind of a headspace when she committed this murder yeah um so after removing the kitchen phone from its hook he left the house via a kitchen window uh they think he may have showered first and then he was able to bang the window from the outside this is what they learned later so that the catch dropped back into position and you couldn't open it so the cousin figured this out and she was like well who else would know this like trick about the house unless you grew up here right essentially you could climb out and then like bang it so that the latch fell and locked the window right so that's how they were able he was able to make it look as though the house had been locked from the inside Um, He then cycled back to his house on his mother's bicycle, called his girlfriend, Julie, then called the police from the phone book at 3.26 a.m. to say he had just received a frantic call from his father. And to create a delay before the bodies were discovered, he, like I said, hadn't called 909. He drove really slowly to the farmhouse. And then he told police that his sister was very familiar with guns and was dangerous so that they would be reluctant to enter and would call for backup before they entered the house. So the prosecution further argued that Jeremy had not received a telephone call from his father at all because the way they figured this out timing-wise is that Neville would have had to, would have been shot in the mouth before this alleged phone call took place. Got it. So they were like, well, when your father called, did it sound like he had been shot in the mouth? (laughs) Right. He was like, I don't remember. And they were like, this is really shady. Like, if you're saying your dad called... 
well, we just found out he'd been shot in the face like twice and right. in the mouth. So this seems very unlikely that your dad called you on top of everything else. Yeah. So on top of that, there was no blood on the kitchen phone. And if he had been shot in the mouth and the face and or he was currently would son, have been something. Yeah. You think there would have been some blood. And interestingly enough, they actually found June kind of crawling toward the other end of the bedroom. Oh. And at first they were like, this is so weird. Why would she have crawled in that direction? What's over here? What was she trying to get to? Well, they found the phone downstairs in the kitchen unplugged. But when they looked closer at the nightstand, they realized there was like a square where the sun hadn't bleached the table. And it turns out the phone was usually on the nightstand. And someone had removed it from the bedroom before shooting her. So she was trying to climb to a phone. To get to the phone. Oh, no. That's so sad. I know. And so there was no phone there. It was instead downstairs with no blood on it. And another fun fact is that... When he called police, he said, oh, my dad called and the phone line went dead or the phone hung up um, and then I called police. Well, they found out that the line had never been interrupted and if the line is still on the hook or if it hadn't been interrupted, apparently the person on the other end of the line, so Jeremy in this case, would not have been able to dial out until that phone had been hung ah, up, okay. if that makes sense. Yeah. So essentially that line had been kept open, even though he said like, oh, somebody, I don't know, right. hung up the phone or there was a shot and the phone died. Um, but it turns out he wouldn't have even been able to make a phone call for like another 10 or 15 minutes mm. once that call had ended if the phone hadn't been hung up. Right. So where are we sorry i'm getting like all worked up um no you're <laughs> this good just the wildest story there's so many strange facts that like Ugh. didn't add up um so uh blah, blah, blah. he had been shot in the mouth before this alleged phone call so jeremy's defense maintained that the witnesses who said jeremy disliked his family were lying or had misinterpreted his words jeremy kept insisting he loved his sister and he loved his parents but they said His defense also said Julie had lied about Jeremy's confession because she was jealous. Uh, No one had seen Jeremy cycle to and from the farm. There were no marks on him, no blood on him, no clothing was ever uh, recovered that had blood on it. And finally, they said he didn't drive to the farm as quickly as he could have because he was afraid. Which I was like, okay, a defense or like an argument. That's okay. Um, Sure. So on October 28th, after deliberating for more than nine hours, uh, the jury had not come to a consensus. So the judge agreed to take a majority ruling, which basically means 10 out of the 12 jurors have to agree on a ruling. Okay. And basically everyone was like, well, shit, because this means the odds are not good. (laughs) Because if 10 out of the 12 jurors have to say that he's guilty for it to go through, otherwise he's off the hook. So amazingly, shockingly, the jury, 10 of the jurors found Jeremy guilty. The majority of 10 to 2, which was the minimum required for conviction. And the judge sentenced him to five life terms with a recommendation that he serve a minimum of 25 years. The judge said, your conduct in planning and carrying out the killing of five members of your family was evil almost beyond belief. Mm. In December of 1994, Home Secretary Michael Howard told Jeremy he would remain in prison for the rest of his life. And since his conviction, he's sought appeals in 1989 and 1994 for claiming that the trial judge was biased against him. Okay. (laughs) Good one. Um, But it was denied both times. Uh, The Essex house and the site of the murders was not demolished, as you might expect of a terribly gruesome Mm -hmm. crime scene. But instead, it has now been turned into the home of a classic car rental company. Oh, 
So fancy that. You want to order a Bentley for the day? Um, I guess I know where to send you. <laughs> we certainly know a place. I know a place, and maybe a ghost will join you on the ride. Right, because, right, right, right. Yikes! Probably haunted as hell. Mm-hmm. Um, so the ga- case has recently gained traction because it's a subject of this mini series I mentioned called White uh, White House Farm, or in the U.S. it's called The Murders at White House Farm. Uh, it was released last year. It's now available on HBO. I binged the whole thing. I stayed up to like 3 a.m. watching it. It's so good and so creepy. And it just puts, I mean, you know, it's, they say like, sure, some of this was dramatized. Some names were changed because, you know, for sake of privacy. Sure. Um, but just the way they present this whole storyline is so compelling and well done. I just, I highly recommend it. There's a lot in the, the six god how many it probably was like five hours worth of tv and so there's a lot in there that obviously i was not able to cover but it's really well done so until this day jeremy bamber who's now 60 years old maintains his innocence as he serves his lifelong sentence in yorkshire Mm. colin the father of the two twins went on to train and practice in the field of bereavement and psychotherapy which i think is really cool wow yeah and he continues a successful career as a sculptor and a potter Hmm. and also in 1999, he remarried and started a new family. So gotcha. he was able to kind of find some peace and closure. Uh, but that is the story of the White House Farm murders and uh, some fucking asshole named Jeremy. Piece of work. Whoa. Wow. I know, right? Isn't that horrible? That was a good story, though, in terms like you told it very well. Thank you. I felt kind of bad because I was like, I don't know, after watching that series, it was so dramatic and like... Yeah. Obviously, they turn it so, like, you don't expect things, but, you know, it's well, it's harder to tell in a well, it's also hard <laughs> audio to, setting. It's also hard to tell, too, because if there really is that many hours of information, you feel right. bad that you're not giving all the information. So Yeah, and, and also on that note, I didn't know what was added for dramatic effect and right. what was real. So I didn't right. want to throw in facts that I didn't find elsewhere in my research without confirming that this actually happened and it wasn't. Um, you know, just added for effect. But uh, yeah, everything that I mentioned here was pretty much what happened. Um, pretty fucked up stuff. Wow. To murder your whole family. I mean, it reminds me of the Menendez brothers of like, do you know that story at all? Yeah. Yeah. I remember also like two years ago, like they came back, there was like a whole documentary about them that people freaked out about, right? Yeah. I think, it, yeah, I think it was on HBO. They did a, a series on them. Because um, they're two brothers who killed their parents and got away with it for a while, right? And then they... Yeah. Yeah. They, they murdered their parents. I mean, I'll cover it someday, but yeah, they murdered their parents and then like bought cars and clothes mm. and just very... Very similar. Not sneaky behavior, not subtle or discreet. Elaborate behavior. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, Jeremy told his girlfriend at one point, I should have been an actor. (gasps) Oh, ew. Isn't that icky? Gross. God, what a piece of shit. Well, thank you for telling it. And uh, I'm also, I am apologizing again to the cake boss. That was not Hoboken style of me. (laughs) To the cake boss? (laughs) For when I mentioned the... the, the... I'm apologizing to the people who died at the funeral. (laughs) Yes, that too. Let me just apologize to everyone because that was just trash of me. Why don't we just give a a blanket apology to everyone ever maybe we should just do that at the beginning middle and end of every episode 
Maybe, yeah, our episode could just be one massive apology start to finish. Let's just do a whole episode where we just say, we're sorry for an hour we're and a half. We're sorry. Um, just layer it, put a beat under there. Yeah. Beautiful. Exactly. You Beautiful. get it. You get it. Jazzy. Well, thank you, everyone, uh, for listening. Again, uh, if you are a member, if you were once a former member of the London Fog Cult, we are now a mem- members of the Society. Society. <gasps> Empathy. Sh- shut the fuck up. Do you know how many people were probably screaming that on the other end of the... I got there, everyone. I got there. I got there. Holy shit. If we... If anybody tweets at us, hey, you missed an opportunity. We know you didn't listen to the whole episode. <laughs> we'll Perfect. catch you. <laughs> anyway, uh, we will now be joining as the society. I'm very excited about excited about it. Um, and <laughs> yeah, you can check out everything on our website, and that's how I drink.com. You can send your... Uh, topic suggestions there your story submissions there for our listeners episodes that we put out on the first of every month um also please join our patreon we're doing some fun stuff i also i'm doing uh tea time tuesday london fog friday we're doing sneak peek saturday love a good alliteration alliteration and literati and in the next week or two um if you are a member of patreon you can expect the newest escape room so (gasps) that'll be super fun um Yeah, I think that's about it, huh? I think that's everything. Um, I'm about to go get vaxxed up. Hey, all right. And that's Hoboken style, baby. That's Hoboken style, baby. And (laughs) that's why we drink. (laughs) Yay. One day we should finish it with, and that's Hoboken style, baby. Oh, that would have been good. Okay, end the episode here. (laughs) The end. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.